This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I am so sick of doing the story that I am about to do and commenting on the story that I am about to comment on. I'm almost of the opinion, can we get it all over with at once? Can we rip the Band-Aid off? Can we put those of us that have some reverence for history and our nation's founding out of our misery once and for all? Let's blow up Mount Rushmore. Let's etch George Washington's face out of the dollar bill. And let's pretend that uh, the history of this country began in 1965. What am I talking about? Well, look, I am a fan of history. I certainly don't consider myself a historian by any stretch. I just consider myself uh, someone that's interested in learning about history, which is why I found the story that was in the Sunday New York Post so sickening, uh, quite frankly. And look, I realize that the New York Post has an agenda and it's to, um, you know, get people hyped up and get them worked up about issues like this. So I am hoping this is one area where maybe the New York Post is creating a little bit more controversy and trying to fan the flames to get precisely the type of reaction they're getting from me right now. However, I've done my own research on this, and it appears that the New York Post reporting on this story happens to be true. So you remember James Madison Remember him? Remember learning about him in school? Pretty important guy. And he was one of the, if not the most important person in the construction of the Constitution and played a pretty pivotal role in the ratification of the Constitution. Then happened to be president when they burned down the White House. And was president during a little something that was pretty consequential called the War of 1812. Well, James Madison's house is a museum in rural Virginia. This happens with a lot of presidents. I was telling somebody over the weekend that when I was in Ohio six years ago uh, covering the Republican National Convention, I was determined to make a visit to James Garfield's house to see the Garfield Museum. I think I was the only person there at the time. And that's the same thing with uh, James Madison's house. Well, now, evidently, the billionaire who funded the transformation of Thomas Jefferson's Monticello uh, establishment, his home, paid for a similar overhaul at James Madison's house, where the primary author of the Constitution has essentially been shoved into a supporting role while... Almost all the educational exhibits at Madison's plantation are about slavery and racism. Now, if I've said this once, I've said it a thousand times. Slavery is something that was uniquely horrific. I mean, there's nothing that compares to slavery in terms of taking the humanity of someone away and taking their freedom away. There's nothing that compares to that in history. Um, Unfortunately, slavery was... Very common in the late 17th and early 18th century, late, late 18th and early 19th century, not just on this continent, but around the world. And a lot of people in the South, including prominent people in the founding of this country, had slaves. It is completely unfair, as I said with Columbus, as I said with Theodore Roosevelt, as I say with Woodrow Wilson, it is completely unfair to judge people who lived hundreds of years ago in my judgment, by the standards of 2022. 
at Montpelier, which is uh, Madison's home in rural Virginia, there are no American flags flying. No American flags flying. And not a single display at this museum focuses on the life and the accomplishments of James Madison. And again, I can't overstate the role that Madison played in coming up with the three branches of government, in writing the Bill of Rights, in writing many of the Federalist Papers. Instead, if you go there as a tourist, you are blindsided by high-tech exhibits about James Madison's slaves and about current racial conflicts in this country now, thanks to a $10 million grant from David Rubenstein. One baffled visitor told the New York Post, I was kind of thinking we'd be hearing more about the Constitution, but everything here is really about slavery. It's been inspirational, I guess, shrugged John from Wisconsin after taking the $35 guided tour. You talk about adding injury to insult. This guy had to pay $35, foolishly thinking he was going to learn something about the Constitution, only to be gobsmacked with an education in how everyone's racist. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Reviewers on social media have been more harsh They really missed the mark, Greg Hancock of Mesa, Arizona. We left disappointed not having learned more about the creation of the Constitution. Another quote, the worst part were the gross historical inaccuracies and constant bias exhibited by the tour guide, complained Alex Z, who visited on July 9th, uh, July 8th. Visitors to Montpelier get to see just three rooms on the sprawling mansion. The estate made Madison the philosopher, farmer, statesman, and enslaver that he was, the guide said. Um, Outdoors and in a house's huge basement, dozens of interactive stations seek to draw a direct line between slavery, the Constitution, and the problems of African Americans today. Um, This I find absolutely outrageous. I mean... James Madison, you know, there's a lot of attention paid to the three-fifths compromise, which said in the Constitution that for the purposes of representation in the census, that blacks would be counted as three-fifths of a person. Well, if you were an abolitionist at the time and you really disliked slavery and you wanted blacks to have a more powerful voice in government, do you know what you would have wanted blacks counted on, counted as in terms of the population, particularly in southern states? You would have wanted them counted as zero, zero people. Now, why, why, why would you not want them counted as people? Here's why. And David Patterson's a historian. We may get him to weigh in on this as well. Here's why. Because by the the southern states gave no voting rights to blacks. They gave no property rights to blacks. They had no rights whatsoever. And yet the southern states wanted to count blacks as if they were equal in status to the regular white property-owning voting citizens in the South. That would have given the southern states more seats in Congress and would have allowed them to perpetuate slavery as an institution and other racist legislation for many years to come. So if you hated slavery, you would have wanted blacks to be counted as zero of a person. So this whole idea that the Constitution is an inherently racist document is completely not true. And if you go to this Madison exhibit, the only in-depth material about the Constitution itself appears in a display that pushes the claim that racism was the driving force 
behind the entire American political system. Even the children's section of the gift shop doesn't have anything with uh, with Madison. It's all ultra-politically correct stuff having to do with racism. Books like Anti-Racist Baby and She Persisted by Chelsea Clinton. I think this is just a real shame. I have no problem with looking at history warts and all. What I do have a problem with is pretending like James Madison is just another schlemiel who got his jollies by enslaving and oppressing black people. It's not, it's not right, and it's not accurate. And I just wish – I feel like every week there's a different story like this. If it's not Jefferson, it's Madison. If it's not Madison, it's Theodore Roosevelt. If it's not Theodore Roosevelt, it's Calvin Coolidge. If it's not Cal, – excuse me, not Calvin Coolidge, Woodrow Wilson. If it's not Woodrow Wilson, it's uh, George Washington. If it's not George Washington, it's uh, someone else. I just uh, – enough, enough. Let's rip the Band-Aid off. Let's just get this over with. Let's have a reckoning and let's decide to in one foul swoop. Let's be like the Soviet Politburo and erase all of our history that has now fallen out of fashion. Of course, that's not what I'm really suggesting. I just find this incredibly exhausting. On the one hand, I can't help but talk about it because it so enrages me. On the other hand, I... Uh, don't want to talk about it because it's the same story every week. And I, I just wonder what's next. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 1-800-848-9222. John is in Nevada. John, uh, what station are you listening to us on out there? I'm listening to you on a podcast, WABC. All right. Okay. Well, welcome aboard. We're happy to have you. We're We're very proud to be carried on the Nevada Talk Radio Network. Thank you for taking my call. What I wanted to talk about was something I learned in my youth. I grew up in Woodbridge, Virginia, uh, just east of Manassas Battlefield. Uh, what Virginia had uh, race problems back in the 70s, and what they did is they had special black cops that they would send into the black community uh, to deal with the troublemakers. What this would do is it would prevent accusations of racism. Uh, the black troublemakers would respect the black cops, and none of the white liberals would make accusations of racism whenever things went bad. John, can I assume uh, this has something to do with James Madison? Yes, it does. Okay. What we need today to prevent the liberals from going crazy with these slave tours and things like that is to elect somebody like Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott, president. Okay. Uh, if Tim Scott was president— he would talk these people down, uh, and nobody could accuse him of well, racism. But honestly, and John, thank you for the call. I think that this is not something that is being pushed by the black community at large. I think this is largely um, being pushed by wealthy, guilty, white liberals. Now, I consider myself a liberal, honestly. I mean, you go down the issue, issue by issue, I fall more left than right, I think. But um, I am not okay with erasing American history for the sake of political correctness. That's not liberal. That's anti-liberal. I, I think it's almost Stalinistic. I think it's authoritarian. 800-848-9222. Mike in New Hyde Park. Hello, Mike. Frank, as usual, great topic. Madison and his co-authors created a system that would eventually defeat slavery. 
So what are we even talking about? And as you said, you referred to the lens of history. It's ridiculous. I mean, where does slavery still exist? Africa. Thank you, Mike. 800-848-9222. Let me in one or two more before we get to Governor Patterson, who's waiting in the wings. Cannot wait to talk with Governor Patterson. He's one of my favorite people to talk to. Jimmy is in New City. Hello, Jimmy. Hi, Frank. Uh, I just think that what happens is it trickles down, and they're getting the younger population who really has no idea about history and all, and they're creating a populace who is turning against each other, and it's it's not right. Um, we're a peace-loving young group of people. I myself work with people of color. I'm like probably one of four out of 90 men on the shift, and we all get along great. There's so much love down there, and we work hard together, our lives and our health and, you know, we're an injury, you know, like one slip from being injured. We look out for each other. And but to put this message out there that they're they're getting into the heads of these young people that we're all bad. It's a terrible thing. And the Democrat Party has to get a grip on it and really, you know, bring us together, you know, create some peace. It's it's just not right. Jimmy, I, I think it's terrible what they're yeah, doing. Jimmy, thank you. By the way, I, I want to be clear. I'm all for having a discussion about race. You want to solve the problems with race in America? Let's have that discussion. I don't think you need to have that discussion at the expense of erasing James Madison's substantial contributions to American history. I I think the two things can coexist. You don't have to make James Madison's plantation a vehicle and a showcase for, you know, I I, I don't even know what you would call this, a a different agenda. Um, Linda is on Long Island. Hello, Linda. Hi, Frank. Uh, I think you mentioned Chelsea Clinton. I think we should have some kind of a museum or something to the one person, Hillary Clinton, who started all this in this country of everybody attacking, you know, each other and everybody going this racism started. Somebody said she lives in an all white uh, community. She's, you know, big troublemaker. She started this stuff with the race. With, with everything going on in this country, with all the lies, with all the illegal things she did, oh, well, she got away with it well, legally. Thank you, Linda. I, I'm no great fan of Hillary Clinton, but I'm not going to blame her for this James Madison debacle. I'm not going to blame her for David Rubenstein as part of his financial contribution demanding this sort of a makeover. I, I think it's important to be intellectually honest and not blame people just because you don't like them. Um, for everything that's wrong with the country today. Uh, th- those of you that are holding, if you want to keep holding, we'll, I'll get to you a little bit later. Very excited. We're going to get to talk with uh, the man, the myth, the legend, former governor of New York State, David Patterson. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's a beautiful I have been a 
great fan of Governor David Patterson for over a quarter century. As a politician, a personality, as someone who I first became a fanatical fan of when he was a substitute host on WEVD for Jay Diamond, I am always impressed with Governor Patterson's knowledge of history, with his passion for everything from sports to politics, and with his incredible, incredible quick wit and sense of humor. By the way, all of that is on display in his memoir, Black, Blind, and In Charge. And I'm thrilled that he's agreed to stay up late with us uh, tonight. Governor Patterson, thanks so much for joining me. Well, Frank, it's good to be here. And I was rather shocked to hear what they did with James Madison's house and who accepted the contribution and allowed it to be turned into more of a political statement against the times as opposed to a um, uh, memorial to the contributions he made, particularly, as you said, to the uh, passing of the Constitution. And uh, even before that, he was an activist during the uh, time of the, uh, Mm. uh, you know, obviously uh, our independence from Great Britain. From Britain, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a head scratcher uh, on this one. Uh, b- by the way, I-, I have to take advantage of your expertise as a, as a baseball fan. You and I share the curse of being long suffering Met fans, and now we're at the uh, the All Star break, the traditional halfway point in the season. Mets are looking pretty good so far, but as any good Met fan knows, you're almost waiting for the rug to be pulled out from uh, under you and for things to go south. How do you see the uh, the second half of the season going for the Mets at this point? Well, for the first time, I actually think that there's going to be a close race between the Mets and the Braves for uh, the National League East championship. And either of them and the Los Angeles Dodgers, who would have the best record in baseball, this will be the first year that the team with the best record at the end of the season in each league will have a bye. They'll have three or Mm. four days off. Now, the problem with baseball is when you take three or four days off, it's different than if you take three or four days off in, say, basketball where you're running up and down the court. So you probably need the rest. But baseball is a precision game. Also, now the pitchers are going to be pitching with five, six, seven days rest, which throws them off. So it'll be very interesting to see how this season goes. However, the Mets went out and got some older players. Um, and uh, with reputations, and they have uh, performed magnificently, mm-hmm. like uh, Strawling Marte, who is going to be on the All-Star team uh, tonight, later on. And I think because of that sort of professionalism that they have, it's infected the rest of the team. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that there's going to be a Met swoon this year. I, I I hope you're I hope you're right. Fingers crossed. The the All Star game is tonight, and uh, I'm wondering. I'm going to watch it. I'm looking forward to watching it. But do you think, in the era of interleague play, especially now with uh, both leagues having the uh, the designated hitter rule and so forth, and those lines kind of being blurred between AL and NL, do you think the All Star game has sort of lost some of its luster these days? I think it's lost some of its luster these days, and I think it lost some of its luster years ago when um, 
baseball really was the number one game in, in sports at the time. And the all-star game was a big deal. Uh, and the world series was a big deal because you would root for the league's champion. Mm. Yet, you know, one of the things that I think changed that was in 1978, I believe it was when the Dodgers went up two nothing against the Yankees in the world series. And the L.A. fans and some of the commentators made these nasty remarks about New York. I think New Yorkers came together. And even though I was a Mets fan, I rooted for the Yankees, who won that World Series uh, in, in 1978, because then it became a battle of cities and not a battle of leagues. Uh, that that is interesting. I, I was uh, I was completely ignorant of the sort of New York patriotism that was on play uh, was uh, was at, at hand in that World Series. You know, I, I alluded a little earlier to the fact that you're so good on the radio, and uh, we're very lucky to have you as a regular contributor on WABC, a regular co-host of the Cats at Night show. You fill in on all sorts of shows, but you were terrific on, as I mentioned, filling in for Jay Diamond on WEBD. Terrific with your own show on W. War and on uh, AM nine seventy in New York, that is the exception among politicians. When you talk about politicians who've tried to make that transition from from the you know political soapbox to the microphone, there's a handful that were good. There's you, there's Ed Koch, there's Buddy Cienci, maybe one or two others, but most of them tend to not work out so well. They tend to work out kind of like Mario Cuomo did when he tried to make that transition. What is it about you that makes you so able to handle that talk radio transition when so many other politicians who've tried haven't been able to do so? Well, when I was growing up in the 60s, there wasn't the technology available for me to get the news and to read and understand. You know, um, books I read were um, on vinyl records. They were uh, – done by the American Foundation for the Blind. But if you wanted to know what was happening day to day, you weren't going to find it out. So radio was my resource. It was my newspaper. It was my method of informing myself. And the more I did it, the more I really dreamed of perhaps being a part of it one day. And I actually got three or four friends of mine and I using two or three of those old um, uh, you know, tape recorders, and we recorded for for 24 straight hours, uh, take, taking turns. Um, uh, I think by the time this project was over, my friends were really ready to disown me. But I was, I was fascinated by radio and wanted to be on the radio from the time I was probably 10 or 11 years old. 24 so straight hours. Yeah, we, we, we actually kept shows going and different shows that we did with each other for 24 straight hours. Uh, that is that's got to be some sort of a record. That's very impressive. I, I remember when I used to listen to you when you were on in the afternoons in New York. There was one aspect of uh, Alex Bennett's program that you sort of rebranded and repurposed as your own. You, you called it Governor's Island. For people that may not have heard that and may not remember either when you did it or when Alex Bennett did it, how would that work? I want to see if I could steal that idea and bring it back. What I would do is I would ask people to call up and to pick a topic that they wanted to debate. And after the two debated, um, whoever the winner was would stay on. 
And then the next caller could call with, so let's say the person that won the debate was the person of po- political uh, philosophy that's conservative. The next caller calls up, and that caller takes a very conservative position, forcing the champion to debate, let's say, the more liberal position. So it was a test of how well do you understand your adversary? If necessary, could you state your adversary's view uh, accurately? And the exercise I thought was particularly interesting because, uh, boy, there was a woman, I remember her name, Cheryl Blue, a serious conservative woman, African-American, but she would flip on the dime and you would and when she got finished you thought AOC was talking. <laughs> <laughs> and she was, I think, a two time champion of Governor's Island. That's pretty impressive. I am going to try and bring that back. We may have to have you be the uh, the guest judge. You know, speaking of AOC, uh, you got a lot of attention recently for some comments that you made on uh, John Katzmatidi's program where you uh, said essentially that uh, AOC and her wing of the party have very little influence and she's largely a media creation. There does seem to be quite a uh, quite a dichotomy in the Democratic Party these days from sort of the uh, the squad wing of the party and sort of the mainstream Democratic wing of the party. Uh, we have a lot of primaries coming up here in New York in the congressional races next month. How do you see that dichotomy playing out both here in New York and around the country? Well, I think that that has happened in the Democratic Party where it's being taken over by a far more progressive wing. And honestly, the way AOC got elected, she outworked an opponent who hadn't been seen in his district for 20 years. And But those are the only seats that the um, uh, super progressives or even those who consider themselves socialists have won. They've only won when their predecessors were just absentee. Mm-hmm. They assumed that they were going to win they didn't campaign, and these people outworked them, and they rightly did win. But what happened is that it became such a phenomena that, for instance, when Amazon was going to put its headquarters in uh, New York and do all this building uh, in, in New York, um, and then there was an outcry after Governor Cuomo named Amazon as uh, you know, and this project that they were going to do, that AOC was giving credit for Amazon being run out out of the state. And that's not what happened. What happened was the elected officials in the areas that they were going to build in were never notified. Mm. And Governor Cuomo had a press conference by himself and basically took all the credit, and it infuriated them. And this fight was going back and forth, and Amazon, not wanting to get in the middle of it, decided to pull out. Somehow that became AOC. She wasn't involved. And I'm not uh, accusing her of saying that uh, she was the one to do it. She didn't do it. The media did. And I think that, that even earlier in when your show and even previously on uh, Dominic's show, the conversations about Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter wishes they could make a difference in the communities. They mm-hmm. are generally not listened to. They were back uh, after the Eric Garner uh uh, incident. Uh, yeah. uh, incident back in 2014, but they then just be, went, you know, the um, money they've raised and these houses they bought and these other situations that they've jumped into, 
uh, I think, again, uh, they they get more benefit out of publicity than actual work. Mm. Uh, we're talking with Governor David Patterson, uh, clearly a student of talk radio, a regular contributor at WABC in New York, author of the book Black, Blind and In Charge. He's the former governor of New York State, former New York State Democratic Party chairman, the first black governor in the history of New York State. And uh, cer- certainly somebody who has assumed that role of elder statesman of the Democratic Party, even though he's not that old, in a, in a seamless uh, manner. Governor, in terms of the midterm elections uh, nationally, it seems like the Republicans are banking on the inflation issue to deliver possibly both houses of Congress to their side. The Democrats seem to be trying to make all these swing districts a referendum on the legalization of abortion rights and a uh, referendum on what the Supreme Court did on abortion rights. How do you see uh, the midterm elections playing out in general and sort of those two sides of the coin, the inflation aspect of it, which would seem to favor the GOP, and the abortion aspect of it, which would seem to favor the Democrats? I think that right now um, Americans in each state are suffering from higher prices at the gas pump, um, costs. Uh, At grocery stores in New York, they're saying that people are now having to spend $500 more each month than they were at this time last year just to get to get the basic services and and, uh, the resources that they need. When that situation occurs, you find that voters are far more pragmatic. They are thinking more about how they are going to be able to pay their rent and how they're going to be able to fill their gas tank. And I think because of that, uh, this will favor the Republicans in the, uh, in the midterms. And they have an opportunity. Remember, in 2010, they won, I believe, 60 seats in the House. They could win more this year. Mm. They could win the majority in the House. They really could. They only need to win one seat in the Senate to take the majority there. So I think the majority of the Senate is bequeathed to the Republicans and, and and now the question is, how high can they run up the score? And so I I think they are going to win on those issues. If you notice, when times are better and people are basically comfortable, this is when some of the more pristine issues, and I mean pristine just in the sense that they are um, uh, not everyday issues, but they do happen to a lot of people, such as um, – when you have a 10-year-old girl in Ohio going mm. to another state to get an abortion after she was raped. And, you know, it, it's a horrible situation. But those types of issues, and even, you know, some of the uh, the victories by the extreme groups on, in both parties tend to come more when times are better. Right now, times are worse. Mm. And I think that you're going to see um, a, a real reaction to the high inflation rate. And if I hear inflation get blamed on Putin one more time, <laughs> I think I'm going to commit my first violent act in life against that person. 
Uh, what about in blue states like New York, uh, specifically the race for your old job, the governor's race? The conventional wisdom has Hochul uh, with a uh, a pretty a pretty substantial lead. A lot of Republicans think this race is going to be more competitive than a traditional statewide race in New York generally is. How do you handicap the Hochul-Zeldin race? Well, what Republicans would hope is that what happened in Nassau County would happen around the state, where the district, uh, where the county executive, Laura Curran, very popular, very well-liked, but she took the wrong position on bail reform. And she followed Todd Kaminsky, a senator who was running for DA. He got beaten by 21 points. She got beaten by one uh, percentage point, but that was enough for Bruce Blakeman, who I've known for a number of years and happen to like him. Uh, uh, he became the new county executive. Could you then take that situation and manufacture it into a Republican win for governor? I don't believe that's going to be the case. Now, Kathy Hochul has had to negotiate with the legislature. Kathy Hochul, in my opinion, uh, and I've known her a long time, is what John Katsimatidis calls a common-sense Democrat. She's not that far out. But she has had to deal with the legislature, Mm. which makes her look far out sometimes. But let's just remember, Frank, and you remember this well, George Pataki, his best friends in the in around the Capitol were Union Local 1199 and the United Federation of Teachers. They were very progressive organizations. But Pataki found ways to um, to appease them. And had he been a Democrat. The Republicans would have called him um, a radical. Yeah, you were a lot tougher on 1199 than Governor Pataki was. Oh, they got on my last nerve. I I remember. I remember those commercials. You know, um, they had a commercial with a blind person saying, Governor, you let me down. (laughs) It's the first time I ever saw a blind person on a commercial, unless it was Stevie Wonder. So, (laughs) I mean, it was really... uh, horrible way that they treated me. And another thing they did, Frank, I was the first African-American governor uh, to be elected. And in 2009, because the 1199 didn't like my budget, which called for a lot of cutbacks, we had to do it because we had a $21.3 billion deficit. The state has never had a deficit even close to that amount of money at that time. And because I made some cuts to areas they didn't like, they arranged for me to get booed when I was introduced at the Black and Puerto Rican Legislative Dinner. And as you can clearly see, I haven't forgotten it. <laughs> uh, no, uh, clearly not. Hey, uh, one of the things that I've been meaning to ask you, is because you were the chairman of the Democratic Party as well, I, I, obviously you're very familiar with Tom Suozzi. You guys go back uh, a ways, uh, both from uh, Long Island, and uh, I think your fathers actually were partners together at one point. That's correct. He ran a, a campaign that seemed to resonate with a lot of common sense people, putting aside Democrats. Were you w- w- he finished third behind Jamani Williams, who didn't even run much of an active primary campaign at all. What was it about either Swazi himself or his messaging, which really failed to catch fire among Democratic primary voters? I think his messaging was creative. He knows the issues as well as anyone. He is a uh, very, very dynamic personality. 
But what I've always thought, and I've said this to Tom, is that when he talks to an audience, he's talking at them. Mm. He's not the person that seems to solicit the views of the people that he's talking to the way other candidates are. Uh, when you watch uh, even uh, Lee Zeldin, when he speaks to an audience, you think you're in his living room. He's very good at that. Uh, Kathy Hochul, who he's going to run against, is extremely good at that. She can make uh, an audience feel that she's completely um, interested in everything that they think. And I'm not saying that that is um, uh, a disguise. I think that she really is that way. It's just that some people transmit that feeling better than others. Hmm. One of the things that we're hearing a lot of news about on the national scene is these uh, January 6th committee hearings. Uh, I think a lot of Republicans and a lot of Trump supporters are sort of shrug, their eyes almost glaze over. It has very little impact on them. A lot of Democrats uh, seem to think that this is one of the defining political issues of our time. As a lawyer, a former prosecutor, and as a you know a political strategist par excellence, what do you think the long-term legal and political implications of these January 6th hearings are going to be? I think long-term we're going to go back to how we actually felt on the night of January 6th and uh, the uh, morning of January 7th. I really think that um, if it were, if it were any place else except the Capitol, then it might've been perceived as a a riot, you know, an an outbreak of, of violence, but the same way in the law, if you shoot another human being, you are, uh, terrible and we put you away for 20 years. If you shoot a police officer, that's different. Um, uh, there are some states, it's a, it's a death penalty offense to shoot a police officer because you're not just shooting another human being. You're shooting someone who has is representing the government, is representing uh, our freedoms, and who is a protector of our freedoms. I think because it happened at the Capitol, it is a lot more important than a lot of people are trying to make it. And they go on and on about Black Lives Matter had a protest in Washington and Trump had to hide in the basement of the White House. They make a big deal about that. But the fact is, had that happened in reverse and Biden had to uh, hide in the basement of the White House, basements are familiar to him, um, <laughs> he would <laughs> he they would then say, oh, it was the security and it was the Democrats who were in charge of the security. Um, uh, I've heard that this is Nancy Pelosi's fault because she was the one that ran the D.C. police. That's actually not true. The Speaker of the House and the leader of the other party in the Senate so that both parties are represented. They do that. And I think that it was, you know, when you remember what you saw, it was shocking. And we had a situation where I think we're lucky that something didn't happen to some of our congressional representatives or senators or, God forbid, the vice president of our country. So do you think that will end up hurting Trump if he runs again, which appears likely? If he ran again, I don't think it would hurt him too much unless he himself spends too much time on it. Uh And I think that that was his downfall in 2016 is that he was beating some issues to death that finally 
the same people who abandoned Hillary in 2016 to vote for Trump turned around and went back to the Democratic candidates in, in, in 2020. But I, it, it could very easily uh, come back to him. I think if he um, runs in 2024, he'd be hard to beat. You know, there's, in the, both the general and in the primary. In the general and the primary, wow. yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I haven't even given the phone number, but people are lining up to ask you questions. You want to take some calls for old time's sake, Governor? Why, sure. Why uh, not? <laughs> all right. Dennis is on Long Island. Uh, Dennis, you're on with Governor Patterson. Hello, Governor. How are you doing, Frank? Great, great. I'm good, Dennis. What's up? Um, I was uh, just wondering uh, what your thoughts are on the possible Michelle Obama getting the nomination. Dennis, your phone's getting a little screwy, but I think we made out your question. I know O'Reilly raised this with John Katzmatidis yesterday, the possibility of Michelle Obama running for president and getting the Democratic nomination. What do you think, Governor? I think if Michelle Obama ran for president, she would have a chance to get the Democratic nomination. I don't think Michelle Obama wants to run for president. That's just my sense of her. I can't imagine why she would. She gets all the benefits of uh, of having a you know a high profile position like that, including Secret Service protection, without any of the headaches. Chris in the Catskills, what's your question for the governor? Uh, good morning, Frank. Show prep and questions are out of this world amazing, uh, Governor. When you when you were governor of New York, I was really rooting for you to pick uh, Congressman Maurice Hinchy, your former colleague in the Assembly, rather than uh, Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand to replace Hillary Clinton. Um, and now Marie Sinchi's daughter, uh, Michelle, is a state senator, and she's killing it campaign, and she has a district she can keep it for the rest of her life. She is now going to be serving with Sarah Hanna Shreska, uh, a, a, a socialist, who was one of the two that was victorious. I see a problem emerging now in the Democratic Party is that it's all about movements. You're either with the socialist movement, you're with the militant progressive movement. Nobody runs on platforms or, or ideas anymore. And the progressives are using psychology, Aristotelian rhetorical theory psychology that says people vote based on values and emotions and not the truth. Um, where do you see, like, platforms and policy wonks coming back into the Democratic Party? Uh, good question, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think he inadvertently answered the question when, when he delivered it in that. That's exactly what's happening. We are voting now based more on emotions and based on, you know, information that uh, is probably manufactured from cable television. And I mean this on both sides. And uh, it, it would be nice to get back to some of the actual issues and debate mm. their validity and, and their importance. So I, I, I think he's right. But there's going to be a, a problem, particularly in the Democratic Party. Uh, where it's presenting itself more so than in the Republican Party right now. Uh, two quick questions before we run out of time, Governor. One has to do with the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. You uh, campaigned for him. You endorsed him in the Democratic primary. He won the general election largely on a um, on a getting tough on crime uh, platform, uh, won almost 70 percent of the vote in the general. He's been uh, mayor for uh, seven and a half months. How do you think uh, Eric Adams is doing so far? I think he's doing well. Uh, I've said this to John Katzmatidis a lot, and I'll say it to you, Frank. I don't think mayors affect the crime rate as much as the public thinks they can. In, in other words, 
it's not that Eric Adams isn't doing enough. Uh, somebody on Dominic's show said something about they needed to bring back, uh, you know, some of the street tactical patrols. They've actually done that. They just don't call it by that name. And the caller was right because the caller said that um, as a Democrat, Adams wouldn't want to use that name. But uh, in Harlem, I haven't seen as many police around here as I have seen in the last few months and didn't see for the past, you know, three or four years. Uh, I think he's off to a good start. Now, in the end, what he has done, he's said a lot. And when you say a lot, the next question is, when are you going to deliver? And that's why I think it's going to be very difficult, because I think that the crime rate is uh, a a matter of communities that were already on the verge flipping into uh, almost mob rule because of the COVID virus. And then inevitably, uh, you've got no socialization and you've got younger people uh, uh, you know, not being in organizations, but winding up in gangs. Hmm. Uh, lastly, Governor, next hour, I'm going to talk with a fellow whose grandfather uh, died possibly uh, chasing a UFO as a uh, as a fighter pilot in 1948. I- I'm curious, do you have a take on the whole UFO question in general? Now there's been congressional hearings. It seems like this issue, which was once very fringe, has become increasingly mainstream. Where do you come down on this kind of thing? Well, you know, it goes back to my old radio days growing up uh, listening to Long John Neville and uh, sometimes Barry Farber and, of course, Art Bell and uh, and, and now yourself who have uh, delved into this issue. I've always thought there's something to it. I have a very dear friend of mine that told me that President Clinton told him that there is something to it, that they know more than they're actually saying. And I have a personal friend who was a big-time college basketball star in the 70s. I mean, you would know his name. We're close friends, and he claims that in 1985 he was abducted uh, and held and tested, he and another person, and then eventually released. And I know one thing. I can't say definitively that it did happen to him. But I can say I know that he believes that it did. So there's a lot. I'll Hmm. probably hang on and listen about the uh, (laughs) uh, person you're going to talk about who was killed uh, while pursuing a UFO. And the family feels they covered it up. One thing is for sure, there's been a cover up. It's almost like the JFK assassination. Whether it was done by Lee Harvey Oswald or not is one thing, but it was covered up. And the government admits to to that. So we never really know the answers to those questions. But the UFO situation is something that's continuing. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence. President Trump, by the way, released a lot of evidence when he was in office, which I don't know that many people know that, but it's aided those who are trying to get us to see that there are beings that are not from mm. uh, from here. Very. So all I can say, Frank, is that um, the Chinese say that they think uh, that there may be life on Mars, and I would think they can say that, but we'll be the first to send them foreign aid. <laughs> 
Governor, the next time uh, we get to talk, we have to get into the China issue, which uh, you've become something of an expert on as well. It's always such a treat to talk with you, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in person soon and doing this again on the radio soon. Thanks so much, Frank, and congratulations on uh, your national show now. Thank you very much. Please give my best to, uh, to Mary and Anthony as well. Take care. The great Governor David Patterson. I love talking to him. I could talk with him all day long. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you could give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Not working hard. Yeah, right, picture that with a Kodak. Or better yet, go to Times Square, take a picture of me with a Kodak. Took my life from negative to positive, I just want you to know that. And tonight, let's enjoy life. Pitbull, Naya, Neo, that's Pitbull. You ever want to know what kind of music we're playing? Uh, just join uh, join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Fans and Haters. So, um, look, I think like a lot of people, you know what we're going to do at the top of the hour? We're going to talk about how to save some money, right? Before we get into aliens, or I don't even want to say aliens because I don't want to trivialize what was a very serious situation, which is the death of... Uh, an American military serviceman in pursuit of a USO, UFO by making it seem silly as if this is just some search for ET, uh, because it's going to be very, you know, it's a discussion I'm interested in having in about a half hour. But at the top of the hour, we're going to talk about saving money. You know what my wife and I are considering doing? My car lease is rapidly approaching being up, right? So now I use the car, my car, 80 to 90% of the time to drive to work and drive home from work. That's that's 90% of what I do. And usually my wife's car is home. We're on opposite schedules. So we're considering, I said that my next car lease would be on any car dealership that advertises on this show. So far, I don't think there has been a car dealership that has come up to the challenge. So I think what we're actually going to do in order to save some money is use one car because I use the car at night. She uses it during the day. And in theory, we could save, I don't know, what am I paying, $325, $330 a month on, on a car payment. So that's, you know, that's substantial. It's over $3,000 a year that we'd be saving, which we could use. So I'm curious if how that's worked out for other folks, other couples that have experimented with this. Matt Blaze, what do you and your domestic partner do? Do you guys share a car or you guys have two? No, we have two cars. You have two. But, um, but you have my it's hours. It's incredible, so the why, car prices. Yeah, no, I know. That's why we're looking at this. But you have my hours. So why wouldn't you consider maybe sharing a car? Oh, I already had the car mm-hmm. beforehand, you own and, it. and you I own lease. the car. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have lease. it no matter what. Right? But yeah, we looked for a new car. Seven thousand over sticker price is what cars are going for. Now. I know, I it's know, absolutely. And insane. you got to wait forever for it. So yeah. that's why I'm not going to shed any tears if I have to give up this car. 
800-848-9222. Hey, those of you that are holding, if you want to keep holding, you're welcome to. And we'll get to you as soon as we can. Anybody else wants to comment, you're welcome to as well. 800-848-9222. In the meantime, I want your answer to this question. If someone is looking for a tip on how to save money, what do you tell them? What's one piece of advice you'd give someone who's looking to save money? 800-848-9222. Simple as that. Until then, keep asking questions. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is indeed The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, uh, and I was listening to a fascinating interview that John Katzmatidis was doing last night with, uh, with Bill O'Reilly. Always an interesting discussion those two have. And, um, you know, I'm used to hearing them talk about politics or, you know, whatever, issues, the news. They got into a very interesting discussion, which I didn't imagine the two of them getting into. That's money, namely saving money. Now, when I, John Katsimatidis is a multi-billionaire, right? He's one of the wealthiest people in the world. Bill O'Reilly is probably worth, I, I, I don't know, I, I'm going to say $70 million, maybe a little less, but he's a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. Both of these guys are super wealthy. Now, when you think of these guys, I guess this is why they're wealthy, you don't necessarily think of people that are sitting there clipping coupons and looking for deals. That's why this discussion was so interesting to me. Listen to this. If you listen to my program at nine o'clock on WABC tonight, we're going to give you a phenomenal money saving tip. It's phenomenal. And I didn't know about this until the weekend because I put investigators on. We have a segment that we run a few times a week called the smart life, live the smart life. It's a brand new segment. Um, you know, brought into BillOReilly.com, and of course, it extends to WABC at 9 p.m. And we found this um, app, The Honey. The Honey. It's an amazing purchase app that can bring down the cost of whatever you buy, including food. So we debut it tonight. I never heard of it. <clears throat> I don't what, even what know does what it an do? App is. I gotta get my. I, I mean, is this like a, right is this like a Latin's lamp? You rub it and genie comes out. Honey, it's it's an amazing thing, and then if you do it, you'll you'll save a lot of money that'll make up from some of these higher prices. Coupons and cashback. Search for deals. You know, it's it's basically coupons. They used to have them in the newspapers, but nobody reads newspapers anymore. So now they've transferred it to the internet, and this honey outfit directs you to the coupons for what you want to buy. And Amazon is a part of it. You can buy anything you want on Amazon. So it's, it's really an incredible thing. But my uh, mandate now is not only to watch these 
politicians that are hurting all of us, but to also give my audience and WABC's audience as many money-saving tips as I can give you to balance this horror, because it is a horror. Mm-hmm. You know, your hourly wage is not going up 9%, and that's the inflation rate. I thought that was so interesting. So I, as soon as I heard that discussion, I downloaded this app, Honey, it's called, although I I actually prefer Bill O'Reilly's pronunciation of it, The Honey. With the exception of Ukraine, I love sticking the in front of words that don't have the because it makes you seem very kind of like, I don't know, old school and vintage. I like that. Sometimes you'll hear me say the YouTube or the Instagram uh, or or the Queens, you know, like the borough, Queens. I say the Queens, the YouTube. I'm doing that intentionally because I love throwing a the in there where it doesn't belong. So I like that O'Reilly did the same thing. I'm sure it was done for humor purposes in that he calls it the honey, not honey. But I downloaded that app, and I'm going to use that all the time now. And I think it's going to save me some money. So it, I got. I was thinking about this a good portion of the day yesterday. What O'Reilly said is correct. People's hourly wages are not going up 9%. So what other tips are out there, whether it's an app like O'Reilly had, whether it's a strategy like someone else has, what other strategies, tips, apps, services are out there that can help you save some money? I'd love to hear yours because I think a lot of listeners might benefit from your suggestions just the way I'm about to benefit from O'Reilly's. What do you have for us? You have a money-saving tip? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I'll tell you, uh, one one tip that I got from a friend of mine, I don't know if he wants to be mentioned, he's pretty well-known, but he said, whenever you, and I wouldn't have thought to do this, and I don't know if this is good advice, I'm, I'm not giving financial advice at all, but this was the advice that he gave me. If you have a certified financial planner, check with that person. But what this person said to me was whenever what he did was whenever he got a windfall, like an unexpected bonus or came into ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars here or there, he would always put that money towards paying down his mortgage and paying off his mortgage. And then the the takeaway with that was he paid off his mortgage much more quickly than he expected to. And he said that for he and his wife. It was such an incredible relief for them financially not have not to have to worry about making that mortgage payment every month. And so I thought that was uh, that was pretty good advice. One piece of advice that they that they that everybody offers is to stop smoking. If you smoke cigarettes or I guess even cigars, uh, although I smoke cigars, but if you smoke cigarettes, the amount of money that is literally going up in smoke with you with you smoking this money away for no reason that's to say nothing of the increased health care costs that that's causing you that's something that is a tremendous financial drain on a person so what money saving tips do you have for our listeners 1-800-848-9222 there are one two three open lines 1-800-848-9222 bob is in long beach hello bob Okay, yeah, good evening, Frank. Look, this might be worth a nice T-shirt to you. you. You say you lease your car, right? Yes. Okay. Now, look on your lease agreement. Look out the buyout, the number of what it would cost you to buy that car out. 
What kind of car you got? Uh, I don't remember. I think it's a Toyota. Fine. Very good. Look at the buyout. You got the car before the pandemic, no doubt, right? Yes. Great. The buyout will be about seventeen, eighteen thousand, 18,000, right? I, I don't know. I, okay. I'll have to look it up. Well, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's about seventeen, eighteen grand. You look at it, right? What you do is then you buy the car, you get a car loan, eh, no prepayment penalty for two, three, four percent, whatever it is. You turn around and sell your car for twenty eight thousand dollars the next day. And I just made you ten grand. Oh, well that is quite interesting. I actually will go online and see if I can do that. No, it's in your lease agreement. It'll say right there with the buyout prices. I had an infinity, right? And what happened was they told me you can't get any leased cars at this time. And then they told me it's going to be $500 a month, maybe more. I said, what? For my QX50, whatever, QX30, whatever it is, right? My, so what I said to them is, so the buyout I looked was like eighteen grand or seventeen thousand nine hundred to be exact. I bought it out. Now I have a car. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to sell. But in your case, if you want to get rid of one car and keep the other car, it, it, you'll make an, an immediate nine ten thousand dollars. That is really interesting. I am actually going to look into that and see if I can do that. And um, you know what? That that if I can do that, uh, Bob, I will let you know. And uh, that that is worthy of a T-shirt, I think. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, <laughs> stay, well, I'll keep you posted on that. I'm going to try that Bob philosophy. Do you see what I'm talking about here? That is a great money-saving tip. Okay. Um, that is something. If I could do that, I could pay off my uh, credit card bill. That would be awfully nice. I think that is pretty good. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. The Fugazi Tom in the Bronx. Hello. Yeah, hello, Frank. Look, this is so old. Buy. Okay, I'm gonna do it like this. Buy clothes out of season. You understand what I mean? Okay. Uh, well, what if what if I don't need clothes though? Well, uh, okay, that's on clothes. Or lay away and and draw out the payments. You know, you can always go back and give them a piece to co hide you now for next week and next week. You have money to do other things. You know, you don't have to pay every week. You know what I'm saying? You pay some now, wait a week, you know, just stretch it out. So the week that you don't pay, you you use that money or save it for other things instead of just putting your money down on one thing until you get it squared. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? I think so. Yeah. I think so. All right. Okay. And ha- ha- Give me another money-saving tip. What do you have? 800-848-9222. I'm looking for this buyout agreement on my uh, – I'm on the website here. So my lease is up August 16th of 2022. So I have to see uh, – I don't see where the the buyout agreement is here. I've had this – See, I have about 26,000 miles on it. Have I had this for two years or three years? I think it's been three. All right, I'm going to work on this. But i got to figure this out quickly. If uh, I, my lease is up in less than a month, I better figure that one out. All right, 800-848-9222. Hey, uh, Matt Blaze, do you have anything you want to offer the listeners in how to save money? Just buy cheap stuff. Uh, don't, get, don't buy expensive things. That is not a good... Um, 
that is not a good tip. Like, what, why uh, is it not a good tip? You hear what O'Reilly you don't, have, had. don't buy new O'Reilly brands. gave us an app. He gave us an app that we can now use to save money. I downloaded okay. it. I want something like that. Go to the dollar Did store. Did you hear that guy, Bob? He, he gave me a tip on how to make $10,000 in a day. I heard. Which I need. That's, that's a great tip. My oh, tip, go to the to, dollar store. Okay. Well, you can't get anything for a dollar over there now. I passed the dollar store yesterday. It's true. I was going to buy ice, and um, and they were selling it for a dollar twenty-five. Neil on the Upper West Side. What do you have for us, Neil? Uh, good morning, Frank. Oh, this uh, is Leo. First of all, I wanted to say hello. Yes, this it's Leo. Leo. Leo, not Neil. Okay, you you fooled Kenneth. Yeah. Well done. Uh, I want to just uh, say one uh, old American saying to this last caller. And uh, it, it, it goes, I'm not rich enough to buy cheap stuff. You buy charger for a phone, for a car in Dallas store, you got to buy it every two weeks because it's just... Uh, just you know, you're, very, you're so right about that, Neil. He, he's right, Matt Blaze. You know, you buy this cheap foreign-made stuff at the dollar store, it doesn't last. He's exactly right about that. He is exactly right. Leo, who Kenneth calls Neil, is absolutely correct. Well, it depends on what you're buying, but you can go. You me can again, go. You can go clothes shopping. Well, not you because I see what you wear. But you can. Go, <laughs> there are people that wear designer clothing, and you don't need to. That's you can fair. go cheaper. Right. Hey, so I just found my purchase. My purchase amount. If I want to purchase this vehicle, it would be sixteen thousand seven hundred sixty-six dollars. So I wonder. Let's see, if I put this up for sale, this uh, this vehicle that I have, which is a relatively new car in relatively good shape, could I actually get $28,000? You probably could. I, um... I could use that 10000 This is this is This might be the most profitable radio show I've ever done. The used car market right now is inc- insane. I mean, more than new cars. So the used car market is, I'm not they sure need new cars. They need wow. new used cars. So, yeah, you can uh-huh. sell it for more than that. I am going to look into this. Uh, I'll say this. Okay, well, this is this is something. Woo! Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to give the listeners a money saving tip, hopefully uh, it's more creative than the Matt Blaze. Don't buy name brands. How could anyone ever uh, have thought of that? Don't buy name brand. What a revelation! Walk out of that Gap. What? No. What? Are they? Walk out of that Chanel store. Walk out of that Coach store right now. And walk to the dollar store. That's right. When you get there at Dollar Tree, tell them Matt Blaze sent you. 800-848-9222. What else do you have for us? Loretta is in New Rochelle. Hello, Loretta. Hi. um, I just wanted to say that my husband and I just did um, a buyout on our three-year-old lease. We did exactly the same thing that the, the caller told you about. Now, um, we're going to keep the car for now, but, like, if because the buyout was based on, you know, prices of cars three years ago. So you know how expensive cars have gotten, and even used cars got really expensive. So And leases got really expensive. So um, we figure that um, we're, we're going to keep the car for now, but if we were to sell it, like, tomorrow, we probably could easily – Make um, eight to ten thousand dollars. Wow! Wow! I, I'm I'm thinking of doing this, Loretta. This is yeah, this is big. This is it's, great. It's kind. Of, it's kind. Of, even you know we're, we happen to be friends with the guy at the uh, dealership, so he was honest with us, and he he even said to us, "It's like a no brainer. You you got to buy the car now because the um, 
because the buyout, you know, price that you're that they're committed to because that's in your lease, it can't it can't go up. So it's you right. know definitely look into it. This is great. Thank you, Loretta. Yeah, this could be big. You know what? The only thing that's giving me some pause is do I want to deal with the dual hassle of one getting the auto loan to come up with sixteen thousand dollars, and then two. Selling this car, right, and then you got to pay taxes on whatever you earn. So I don't know. I I, I do like the idea of having another ten thousand dollars. Think about what I could turn that ten thousand dollars into at the at the baccarat table. Think about that. I, I roll into Atlantic City with let's say I'm not going to gamble with it all. Let's say I roll into there with five thousand dollars. Forget about it. They'll they'll give me the town. They'll give me the whole town. They'll give me the keys. It'll give me the keys to the Borgata by the time I leave there. Uh, Chris is in Mount Vernon. You have a money-saving tip for us? Yeah, uh, learn how to cook. You know, like they, these restaurants, like my sister-in-law, for instance, was was uh, throwing a party for her daughter, and she's telling me, oh, yeah, I'm going to get some stuff in the pizzeria. I'm going to get a tray of uh, of uh, penne and a, and a, and a this. And, and they're charging $100 for, for some penne. I can make for like 20 bucks. It's like, just, just learn how to cook and save way more money if you just cook it yourself. You know, my ex-girlfriend, Mallory, was a big believer in that. She would, um, she would, she loved showing me the cost if we went to a restaurant of the same meal that she would make at home and the amount of money that was, that was saved. That, that's a great tip, actually, Chris. Much better than the Matt Blaze suggestion of... <laughs> Don't don't buy designer brands. Well, I said go cheaper in, in food, like buy ramen noodles. Go back to like college years. Steve is in Long Beach. Uh, what's your tip, Steve? Don't hey, go into radio. I just I just wanted to uh, say that the other gentleman is one hundred percent right, and you should follow through with selling your own car. And you could probably list it. I think on Carvana might be your easiest way to do it. Uh, yeah, uh, believe uh, me, I'm going to do this. I could use an extra ten grand. Believe me. So I don't have a specific tip, but I can say generally, getting your taxes in order and using the law to uh, to save money, I think, is a great way to go about. It. A lot of people just pay their taxes and they don't really pay attention to uh, their deductions. So I think if you really pay close attention to what you can write off and how to minimize how much tax you're paying, you know, you have a legal obligation to pay your taxes. You just don't have a legal obligation to overpay. So what, what does that mean in practice, Steve? Let's say I decide I want to take the Steve from Long Beach approach. What do I then do? All right. So for me specifically, I write off uh, things that I use for work. Um, I write off. So I went and I intentionally bought a two-family house. And I'm able to write off uh, a, you know, a large percentage of some of the things that I do around the house as far as maintenance, maintenance taxes, and uh, repairs. So – Practically speaking, that's what I would do. But I don't know what uh, what you do in your everyday life. Okay. Yeah, so that's definitely a, a conversation with your with people should be having with their CPA. Absolutely. 800-848-9222-123. Open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. Corey is in Florida. Hello, Corey. Good morning, Frank. Howdy. Howdy. Um, so wh- whichever way you go, if you want to sell your lease car or... All right, well, so I'd like to move on from my personal situation and give people some more okay. money-saving tips that they could that they can benefit from even if they don't have a lease that's about to mature. Okay. So, don't 
Lisa Carr. Okay, Why yeah, that's a big Lisa Dave Ramsey. Carr. That's a big Dave Ramsey tip. He's always telling people right. never Lisa Carr. And I think Tom Likas, uh, when he does his Money Monday segments, he's always tells people the same thing. And both of those guys, whatever you think about them, and they're on sort of opposite ends of the spectrum, Dave Ramsey and uh, Tom Likas, they do know a thing or two about uh, about finance. Tom is on Staten Island. Hello, Tom. Frank, I know you don't want to talk about your car, but you could tell your car right back to the dealer. My son did that, and uh, you don't have to go through the hassle of borrowing oh, the money and all that. Wait, kind of so stuff. I could then? You, I, might, you might not. You might not. You might not get the ten thousand, but you might get you know five thousand or six thousand. Still money in your pocket. Well, then uh, would I? Would I still need to go through the trouble of getting an auto loan and everything? No, you tell the deal. Have the deal. Tell the deal you want to sell. Let them buy the car from you. Right. Okay. Uh, even though it's a lease, it's a lease. They'll, they'll work out the paperwork. Okay, that's not bad, actually, Tom. That's pretty good. Thank you. Uh, Sean is in Brooklyn. Hello, Sean. Yes, sir. First, I know you don't want to talk about your car anymore, so I'll talk about his, some history. And listen up, America. You were talking about Adams before? And then I'll make a quick tip about saving, saving money after, okay. I tell you. Yep. So, first of all, I'm going to use Egypt as an example. And I want everyone, especially Democrats, to listen up. What do you Do you think the pyramids of workers and builders got paid by the hour? They were slaves that built the pyramids. Now go back to uh, uh, Spain and, 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 and Britain 400 years ago. When Isabella, the queen, sent Christopher Columbus to America, do you think the people around at that time in Spain were getting paid by the hour? So, they were also they were servants. So, they were Sean, also your money-saving tip is to use slaves instead of standard domestic no. servants? No, well, my point is we were making practical. no to BLM, BLM is talking about reparations for slavery. And there were slaves all over the world. What about Irish? The Irish were slaves when they came to America. I mean, there were slaves who built the pyramids. We're going to pay uh, uh, this, this, this notion that only black people were slaves is false. Okay? White people were slaves. There were slaves in England, slaves in Egypt, pyramids, and slaves right here. On American soil. Well, wait, wait, wait Sean. Sean. Back, I'm talking about turn of the century. I'm going back. Wait, wait. Turn of which century? I'm talking about the 1800s. So in the, in the 1800s, labor. you think there were white slaves in North America? My great-grandfather was a slave, and he's white. All right. I, okay. I, that's, a, that's not a view of history that I'm familiar with. That, I must have uh, slept through that, that course. White slavery and... In Brooklyn, 101. Now, it's not to say that immigrants to this country that were of European descent were not treated, in in some cases, in a slavish manner. But uh, I feel pretty good saying that there were never white slaves in the United States of America, legally. Never legally. might be an illegal situation somewhere. But black slavery was a legal practice in, in this country. I mean, it's very different, Sean. And I don't think that's a practical money-saving tip to use slaves instead of regular household domestic servants. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yes, uh, Frank, hi. You know, um, I'm, real, I'm really taken aback by, you know, when you said that you, 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 like, you, you like talking to David Patterson. You could talk to him all day long. I love talking I don't know to David Patterson. 
Yeah, but you see, I suspect you were virtue signaling because the man is black and blind. Because I, <laughs> I, I, ha- I happen to view him as a moral degenerate. Seriously. What? Uh, and for the re- and, and he displayed it. He displayed it when he said he, he first of all he talks about all these you know these elaborate things with these you know intellectual, and then he, all of a sudden he says something nonsensical like, you know, the mayor doesn't really have much to do with crime. I mean, give me a break. That doesn't make any sense. Giuliani cleaned up the city single-handedly. The yeah. mayor controls the police commissioner, all the pro- the programs that he does. He he's just he loves Adams as a brother, as a black brother. I'm going to say it right out. And he wants to cheerlead for him, so he says something nonsensical. That's moral degeneracy. Larry, you are way off base, and to be honest, you sound completely racist. Uh, for you to say that. Um, Patterson is, uh, is saying something nice about Eric Adams because he's black. Uh, or, I mean, it's just it's it's ridiculous. And it kind of reinforces all of the stereotypes that people have about angry, white, racist talk radio callers. Uh, and uh, I think we're all, I mean, I'm glad you said that so that people know that view is out there. But you're you're on another planet. I mean, that's just. I mean, it just sounds idiotic, if you'll pardon my saying so. 800-848-9222. Hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to now for something completely different. We're going to talk to a gentleman whose grandfather was killed in action in the United States military. And the true story of the death of Captain Thomas Mantell has never really been told. It's been speculated about for over 60 years. We're going to get into it with his grandson, Terry Mantell, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. other side of midnight i'm frank morano i have for many years uh, been fascinated by the death of uh captain thomas mantell now uh there is a great deal of mystery about what happened to this 25 year old air national guard pilot he died in the crash of his p-51 mustang fighter plane near kentucky That's what we know. Uh, There's a lot of speculation about what happened in that airplane and what he saw. This has been discussed and debated for since at least the 1950s. And now there's a lot of attention that's being paid to this story. 
And one of the people that has been trying to get the truth out about what happened to Captain Thomas Mentel happens to be his grandson, uh, Terry Mentel. Terry, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Frank. I'm happy to be on. So, uh, Terry, what can you tell us about your your grandfather, who uh, obviously I presume you never got to meet, and uh, his military record during World War II, for instance? Sure. Yeah, in World War II, he actually flew on D-Day and flew a couple different missions. But on D-Day, he uh, went on Normandy. Uh, he got hit not on a different mission. I think it was uh, Market Operation Market Garden. He got hit. He was a. Uh, he was too tall. I'm six six. He was too tall to fly the fire plane. So he flew uh, one of the bigger, larger planes, and he actually had a glider that was attached to his plane. So on that certain day at a certain mission, he got hit with a lot of flack uh, from uh, German. And it, instead of abandoning and letting go of the glider, he continued on and hit his mark. And made it back to England, and his plane was completely. If you saw the picture of the plane, I mean, it, I don't know how he made it back alive. But he got the Distinguished Flying Cross. Uh, he won other medals, so he was very, very well, great pilot. So he knew his way around an airplane and uh, was not inexperienced by any stretch. Is he somebody that um, that was considered reckless as a pilot? Uh, was he somebody prone to say drinking or doing a lot of uh, odd stunts in an airplane? No, no, not at all, not at all. He was, he was very. Now I think he had that mentality of, uh, you know, a, a pilot in that day. I'm sure being 23 at that time, 24 years old, he he felt pretty good about himself. I'm, I'm thinking, but not he his his reputation, his nickname was called Shiny. I mean, everybody liked him. Hmm. Um, very, very, very good pilot. January seventh, nineteen forty eight, in the incident that we're talking about. He dies. What was your family told about his death at the time? Well, actually, there wasn't a whole lot said to our family. They, my grandmother actually found from a neighbor that the plane went down. Um, and then there were stories that came out that said he was uh, chasing Venus, uh, that he was chasing a weather balloon. The weather balloon basically was, I think, was the lasting story that was given that he was chasing a weather balloon. So that's what the did the what did the military, if anything, tell your family? Military really didn't come out and say anything exactly. Uh, they just there was reports that was drawn up, and basically, they said that he flew too high and passed out and uh, chasing a weather balloon. Um. Well, why do you have reason to doubt that story? Well, I mean, to, to give the background of the story on January seventh, nineteen forty-eight, it was a typical January day. Clear skies, blue, cold. Um, there was all kind of calls coming in from around Kentucky to the police station saying that people saw something. Well, the police station got overflooded with these calls, and so they called Fort Knox, Godman Field, and said, we're getting all these calls. Can you check it out? Well, at that time, Thomas, being our grandfather, was coming back from Marietta, Georgia, just on a practice run. He was uh, in charge of a squadron. They was just doing a little practice mission. He was instructed to go check out something. He saw it, engaged. And this chase went on for like 20 to 30, 40 minutes. He was back and forth, radio contact with um, Godman Field, saying it's huge, looks metallic, going in for a closer look. His wingman left him, um, and then actually he instructed his wingman to go to hot gun, which is a military term for uh, let's load up the P-51s for, um, to be able to fire. And so they was actually on the ground getting um, equipped with weapons 
while he was chasing this thing. And so I think for him to be a pilot, I think he was just too good of a pilot. It's not like, to your point, it's not like he was a crop duster. He just, you know, radioed in to local stations and said, hey, I'm seeing something when he chased it. He was, he was doing, he was instructed to do any. And my dad was only two and a half years old at the mm. time. Oh, so, so sad. I, I hate uh, that uh, that uh, that your your father had to grow up without his father in his life. That's uh, just just so sad. Um, in 1956, eight years after your grandfather's death, Air Force Captain Edward Rapalt, who was the first head of Project Blue Book, he wrote that this crash, the one involving your grandfather, was one of three classic UFO cases in 1948 that would help to define the UFO phenomenon in the public mind and would help convince some Air Force intelligence specialists that UFOs were a real physical phenomenon. I know you've done a fair amount of research into this, Terry. Is Do you believe that's accurate? Do you believe that statement from 1956 is accurate? I think his story was definitely one of the top three. It was interesting that, that six months from the day from Roswell was the day that uh, Thomas died. And then if I just look back and if, if we just look back as a society and see the the technology that came out around that era and how fast it exploded on the scene, there was something really going on around the mid to late 40s, early 50s that I can't explain. Mm. Uh, it's also been said by some historians that the incident involving your your grandfather, it marked a tectonic shift in government and public perceptions about UFOs. Do you think that's true? I believe so. I mean, I think it, it, it here recently, of course, it's exploded and it's been on the scene. It's a little more easier to, to talk about and actually not be, when I remember when I was little without the internet, I'll tell people a story. Everybody thought I was crazy. So I think, I think that the more that the government were having these hearings, we're having uh, people come out and come forward. You're having more videos. I'm thinking it's, it's, it's way more mainstream now than it was back in the day. What are you and your family looking to do now, and why are you pursuing this now? Unfortunately, your grandfather is still dead. Nothing that uh, that you do or the military says is going to bring him back. So what are you hoping to do right now? Well, I, one, I just think that getting the story out there is – it's always been – the family, It's always we've always talked about it with the family. My dad, he had a hard time talking about it because he always got upset. But for me, ever since I was a little kid, I just – the story is amazing. Uh, people need to know who Thomas Mantell is. You know, Discovery Plus just dropped a show uh, back in May. My brother and I did. Um, that, that was huge. And then the son ran a story. I mean, my end game is, well, my brother's going to be working on a book. I would, I'm in the market of a screenplay because I think if you look at his life uh, from being in love with my grandmother to fighting World War II to getting the Seamus Flying Cross, to come back home and then to, to die the way he did at 25 is just, it, you don't have to add nothing to the story. Yeah. So I think his story getting out and just hopefully, I mean, my end game, I would love for somebody to give me a call from the government and said, okay, this is exactly what happened. Now, we did have contact with people that was in the uh, tire at the time at uh, Fort Knox, and he said, we saw it, and it was a saucer. And when the when that plane went down, he said the red tape came out everywhere, and everybody pretty much that was working there got dispersed across the U.S. and said that their pension was going to be taken away, and this was not to be talked about. So there was, a, there, was there was definitely a cover up, and to get the truth, that's the end game at the end of the day. We're talking with uh, Terry Mantell, a uh, grandson of uh, Captain Thomas Mantell. 
killed at the age of only 25 in all likelihood in pursuit of a flying saucer or some type of object. Uh, Terry, what is it that you think your grandfather was chasing? Do you have any idea? You know, I have no idea. I think, you know, when they came out and said it was Venus, I guarantee there's no way he was chasing Venus. Venus, the planet Venus. The planet. That's, mm-hmm. That was one of the theories. The weather balloon, I'm not sure. I think uh, I've talked to people, and they said that the, they release weather balloons at air bases all the time. That's something he'd be familiar with. Whatever it was, it was enough for him to put his life on the line, that he wanted to go to military hot guns, and that really I think he died doing something that he thinks he was protecting America from. Now, what was that? Of course, I don't know. It, it, for me to come out and say exactly what it is, I don't know what it is. Uh, I just know it was something that it was enough for a young stud, I would say, that uh, knew how to fly, that uh, was an experienced World War II vet, that uh, he put his life online and, and he died. Do you believe that the government knows more than they're letting on? Do you believe that the military knows the truth about what happened to your grandfather? Oh yeah, yeah. I think the military definitely knows the truth, and I think I think the military definitely knows more than they let on. And that could be a reason because, at the end of the day, you don't want to have mass hysteria and, and for them to come out. Now, it, it seems like it's inching closer with all these hearings and uh, the news coming out and, and like stuff like that. But I think, it, especially back in the day, if they would have came out and said, "Okay, this was a flying saucer," I mean, you, you could people would start freaking out. So I think the military, I think they know a lot more than what they're. Uh, let you know let people know you know you've been very public you did the interview with the sun as you mentioned you've done some some other television you're doing this program has there been any reaction either privately to you and your family or publicly from the military or the or any government agency about what you've been saying and about your pursuit to get the truth there has not there is not that's that would be fantastic if if we did get a call or somebody did show up and talk to us, but you know, his, his mother, my great grandmother to her dying day, she tried to find out what happened to Tommy. Um, my dad, his brother, my uncle Tommy, they tried to find out what was going on. I think my brother and I, what we're really trying to do is I said, okay, I'm going to really put it out there. I mean, you know, knock on doors. I mean, on Twitter, tag people, send people messages. I don't know what else really I can do. Um, but as long as I'm getting this story out and people are willing to listen, then I'll I'll talk about it because I do think it's one of the greatest stories that's ever happened. Oh, no, absolutely. As best you know, Terry, is your grandfather the only member of the American military that was killed in action pursuing a flying saucer, or have there been others? You know, I don't know if there's been others. I know he was the first martyr. Yeah, the first person ever killed in a UFO pursuit. What would it mean to your family to have the military or any other government agency sort of confirm the truth about what happened in your grandfather's death? Well, I think it would bring a lot of uh, peace. It would bring satisfaction in knowing that uh, we actually know the story. Uh, I feel like have the contacts and, and the conversations that we've have had, I know he was chasing something. Now, was it some sort of military operation that even the pilots didn't know about? Was it a flying saucer? You know, I, I can't sit here and say exactly what it was, uh, but it would bring peace. Yeah, it would for sure bring peace. 
Do you think the the whole you mentioned how uh, there's now congressional hearings and uh, things of that nature? There's certainly a lot of mainstream news coverage about the UFO issue. Do you think this issue is less stigmatized now than it might have been in 1948? Are people more willing to talk about this issue in a serious manner openly as opposed to 70 years ago? Oh, yes, for sure. We wouldn't have this conversation seven years ago on a radio station. So, uh, yeah, with the, with the amount of documentaries that are coming out, shows, technology, uh, the, the hearings, I mean, yeah, you could have this conversation anywhere and people would not look at you like you were crazy. Mm. So that, it's, it's, it's definitely come a long way, and it's, it seems like it's came a long way in a short period of time, just in my lifetime. That's for sure. Uh, that is for sure. So so one of the things that people have taken away from the incident involving your grandfather is that this could be an indication, uh, I believe the uh, historian David Jacobs has said this, that this that extraterrestrials could potentially be hostile uh, because their actions resulted in your grandfather's death. Not that you're necessarily an expert in extraterrestrial psychology, but uh, do you think that there's a possibility that these extraterrestrials are hostile? You know, it's interesting because on our show that that dropped on Discovery was called Alien Endgame. That basically the documentary was or st- was stories like ours and a couple others um, that the, it it could be hostile. You know, I think if it was hostile and if there was a form out there and they had the technology to travel to the earth and if if they were hostile, I think that it would already be over with. Um, And if if they were hostile, I don't think we have a a chance against them. So I I, I hopefully nothing out there is hostile, but I I don't think they are hostile. If they are out there, like I say, I don't know. Uh, I don't know for a fact what's out there, but I don't think they are hostile. But if they were, we'd be in trouble. You alluded to the Roswell incident. This year is the 75th anniversary of the Roswell incident. Do you have a theory about what happened there? Any idea based on either your research or even just uh, informed speculation? No, I, I think, and like, like I told you, there's 75th year anniversaries this year. And so Thomas Mantel would be 75 this year in January. But I, something happened there. I think there's there's definitely something that happened there. You look at the military buildup, uh, how they have everything blocked off, uh, you know, Area 51. Um, something definitely happened there. Uh, could it be as grand as Independence Day when they actually had some aliens, uh, you know, 500 feet below the ground? I'm not sure. But I go back to that theory of just seeing the way technology exploded after that period to where we are now. And I don't know how we can go that fast, that far in such a short amount Mm. of time without having some kind of intel given to us or acquired. There's always been that, um, there's been some speculation that maybe in the aftermath of Roswell, the, there was reverse engineering of alien technology, which helped precipitate the the mechanical and computer revolution that followed. It sounds like you, you think that might be a possibility. Oh, I, 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 yeah, I definitely think that's a possibility. And and you don't have to go that far to, to think that's such a big stretch. Just to your point, this, all the technology and ability in the last 70 years, something happened. 
Something happened indeed. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this conversation right now, Terry, that think, okay, it's sad what happened to Captain Thomas Mantell. But sometimes the simplest explanation is the right one. And they're going to say, all right, he was probably chasing a weather balloon and got too high. You don't believe that that would have been the case because you believe he would have been, as an experienced pilot, familiar with what a weather balloon looked like. Yes. Yeah, I think for... Him chasing something for 20, 40 minutes, I think the government would have known that there's a weather balloon up in the air. I think that, uh, again, I have two daughters myself, and I, I would not put my life on the line if I think it was a weather balloon. Um, I know those things can look big, and they look kind of wild when they're up in the sky. But, again, I'm just going back on his military record, his flying ability, him being married with two little kids. I just don't think he would risk his life. And, you know, he went up too high. Yeah, he, he went too high chasing this thing. And I do think that he passed out because he was on a mission trip. And so the P-51s at that time, he didn't have oxygen on the plane because they was flying below uh, the level. And he uh, he went above it. And I think he chased this thing until he went above it and then passed out and crashed. Then mm. um, now who's to say that he didn't get too close to this thing and something happened to his plane. But I do think his body was in the plane. Because uh, there was reports saying his body was missing, and but no, his body was on the plane. He he was in the crash, and I just think he, whatever he thought, he thought that he was protecting America. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, I'm wishing uh, you the best. Oh, by the way, but well, the other thing that I've heard occasionally from those who discount the UFO theory is that maybe your grandfather, while he might have been an experienced pilot, maybe he was just unfamiliar with this specific type of airplane, the P-51 Mustang fighter plane. Is that a possibility? I've read that stuff before. Again, he wanted to fly them in World War II, but he was too tall. So when he got back and he joined the Air National Guard, he got to fly the P-51s. You know, he was a pilot. I think he was a pilot. He knew how to fly. Uh, he had many hours of flying. Did he have a whole lot of hours flying in the P-51? Maybe not, but because he only was back from World War II for not that long. However, he was the captain of that squadron. He did hold the Distinguished Flying Cross. He did have air medals. Again, this wasn't some guy flying a prop plane and uh, decided to just, uh, chase something in the sky. He was told what to do. He was instructed to ch- uh, chase it. He chased it. He reported on it, and then he crashed. Mm. Well, wishing you and your family the best. I I hope uh, you're able to get uh, the truth out of the government on this one. Please keep us posted on uh, any developments on this story, and uh, we'll be on the lookout for that Discovery Plus show. And if uh, that screenplay ever ever gets produced, I'll be the the first one in the theaters to see this. I appreciate it, Frank, and I thank you again for letting me come on and talk to you. Thank you. I'm a big big Yankees fan, so it's exciting to be in New York. Hey, well, I'm a Met fan, but we could still we we could still be friends, Terry. (laughs) Yes, sir. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, for being a a part of this. Thanks for the conversation. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. By the way, I was very disappointed um, that uh, Pete Alonso did not win the uh, home run derby last night. He didn't get to, to three-peat. Juan Soto was the winner of the of the home run derby. So congratulations to Juan Soto. Uh, but uh, ah, I was really hoping that uh, 
he would pull it out one last time. Yeah, Juan Soto is uh, an outfielder with the Washington Nationals, so congratulations to him. We'll take your calls next. Any subject is fair game. One, two, three, four, five, six open lines, 800-848-9222. I find that Mantell story pretty interesting. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. And uh, done dirt cheap. This is the other side of midnight. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I see we have um, Eric Eric Mantel from from Kentucky calling in. Eric, uh, I understand you are the the brother of uh, Terry, who we just spoke with. Yes. All right. Well, we'll we we brother. We only have about a, a minute or two here, Eric. But give me your take on the whole situation involving your your grandfather. It was it was a lot of what my brother said. Uh, you know, the, the military first came out with the with the Venus explanation, which really, really hogwash. Uh, it, it you know, it, I I know you. I don't know if you remember Art Bell, and I know you probably get into some interesting topics. But I've always thought that if if there are beings from other planets, other universes, the the technology that they would have to travel space and time beyond our comprehension and it's it's something that you know myself my brother and others in our family you know we've always thought about you know what did happen uh it i think that the underlying message and i want to reiterate what what uh, my brother said was this was a decorated pilot a decorated world war ii veteran who really saw a major uh, things over there in World War II, uh, the fact that whatever he was chasing, he you know he felt it was a danger to the country, uh, and that he did put his life uh, on the line. So uh, we we very much I, I want to thank you again uh, for for reaching out uh, to to him, and you know I just want to chime in as much as I can because we are interested in getting this out uh, to as many people. It's possible, so uh, we really appreciate. Uh, well, thank you, Eric. Uh, wishing you the best of luck. Please keep us posted on the story. Sorry, thank you. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Gary in Teaneck, New Jersey. Hello. Hi, Frank. Love your show. First off, um, thank you. You keep me organized on this. Okay, I've known this for a long time. I've investigated deeply. Very intense events. Do you have five minutes? Do I fight? No, we have uh, about uh, okay. eighty seconds. Okay, let's uh, let's tell it. Uh, 
My wife's uh, grandfather was one of the first OSS operatives in World War II. He was also a pilot and a military enthusiast. He was very decorated. Um, names right now are irrelevant. I'll tell the story. I'd rather get in touch with people who care about the subject. He ultimately became what they call a gatherer for the military. He was a lieutenant colonel. He became in charge for a year in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I know you know the subject. Um, so I went and did some research. He had gun photos of the exact same type of thing that Terry just talked to you about. Wing gun photos. In other words, they were up. They reported. They said they saw something. They started taking wing film. I don't have film. I have one lousy picture in a box. But it was written on and it was documented that it was going 1,900 miles an hour. It it was not a meteor. It was not a weather balloon. They chased it. Gary, I I find that story pretty compelling. Uh, Out of time here, unfortunately. Um, If you want to continue to comment on this, you can do so, 800-848-9222. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know what's interesting? I, I'm curious if you've noticed something. And those of you are, that are on hold, whatever the subject is, I'll get to you. But I'm curious if you've noticed something. I'm going to go through the mail in a little while. And if you want to send a written word to whether it's criticism, praise, a question, whatever the case may be, you can email me, frank.morano. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. You can uh, send me uh, an email, and uh, we will address it in about 15 minutes. But I've always been fascinated, from the time I was a child, by the term best friend. And I've always sort of bristled at that term, best friend, because I don't, I don't, I don't like that term. Because just because you have a, a very close friend or a super close friend— Why is that person a better friend than another potential friend, right? I mean, I feel like you're making a value judgment about someone's ability to be a good friend when um, that's not necessarily what you're trying to convey. And I, I was listening to a woman. She was describing a friend of hers. She introduced a friend of hers to somebody. at No, excuse me. She introduced herself as, oh, I'm Monique. I'm so-and-so's best friend. And I thought to myself, well, gee, I know so-and-so, and and I don't think that that's how she would view it. And yet this woman, Monique, she has used this description when I don't think it's mutual to describe that person all the time. And so I was talking to my wife about it recently. I said, I find that odd that, so-and-so is using this term best friend all the time. And um, 
Now, I've called my son my best friend because, uh, I don't know, I feel closest to him, you know, closer to him than anybody. But I I just, I've never liked for a non-familial relationship, I never liked that term, best friend. And so then my wife was saying that she thinks it's something that mostly younger people do. And, you know, it's very high school, junior high school, oh, we're besties, so-and-so. And then was talking to a neighbor recently. And she described, and this is a person in her 60s, and she described going to visit her best friend's house. And this is a mature woman, not, no, not a juvenile teenager at all. So then I got to thinking, maybe, maybe it's not something that's limited to only young people. So I'm curious, do you use the term best friend? And what's your view of people that do use the term best friend? I I don't think for a platonic relationship, I don't think I've ever used that term from, you know, sixth grade on. I don't think so. 800-848-9222 if you have a thought on that. I'll tell you, if you did have a best friend as a child where you would want to hang out with them, and that's Toys R Us. I don't want to grow up fun. Toys R Us kids. They got a million toys and toys R Us that I can play with. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. They got the best for so much less. You really flip your lid. From bike to train to video games. It's the biggest toy store there is. She wins. So I was kind of bummed, even though Toys R Us had really gone downhill, I was kind of bummed when all the Toys R Us stores uh, closed. I have some very fond memories of going to Toys R Us as a child, uh, going with my mom, going with my grandfather, going with my grandmother, and they would go there and let me pick out, you know, one toy. It was really a lot of fun. And it's they've been closed for, I guess, about five years now. And now Toys R Us is poised to make a major comeback. Toys R Us is making a comeback and it will be just about everywhere in time for the holidays. Toys R Us will be in every U.S. Macy's in the next few months. Um, next few months. This is part of an expanded partnership with the toy retailer's parent company, WHP Global. The toy stores will range in size from a thousand square feet in smaller locations to, you ready for this? Up to 10,000 square feet in flagship Macy's in Atlanta, Chicago, Honolulu, Houston, or as we New Yorkers call it, Houston, Los Angeles, Miami, New York, San Francisco. The Toys R Us footprints may expand during the holiday, uh, peak holiday season. So the stores are going to begin opening in late July, just a couple of, just a week, week and a half. They're going to open late July and stay open through October 15th. So uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be a permanent thing, but at least it's back in some form or another. Macy's plans uh, some customer-friendly perks, including demonstration tables for new toys and a life-size Jeffrey Giraffe photo op. I love this. I love that it's coming back. I just wish um, I wish other brands would come back. I'd love to see maybe a temporary... Uh, Howard Johnson's come back. Howard Johnson's the restaurant, not the not the hotel chains. That would be fun. I'd love to see that. All right. 
800-848-9222. We're going to go through the mail in about 15 minutes. But for now, you want to comment about having a best friend, uh, Toys R Us, UFOs, anything at all, sky's the limit. 800-848-9222. One open line. This is uh, The Other Side of Midnight. Let me say hello first to uh, Jerry in Basking Ridge, who's been waiting a while. Hello, Jerry. Hey, how you doing? Good. Uh, I want to talk about UFOs. Be my guest. I once saw a cigar-shaped figure way above the sky uh, that was... uh, uh, out of my mind, I, I, I got to say. Where did you see and, it? Uh, excuse me? Where did you see it? We saw it on 287 heading south. Um, uh, somewhere along the Bridgewater area, thereabouts. But anyway, I was uh, walking down the street smoking a, smoking a joint with my friend and we saw uh these 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 figures that were uh, quite uh unimaginable um they they were they were they were a, a glowing a, a glowing white ghost I, I would think Really, out of, out of these out of, out of these fields that we didn't that that we knew very 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 well. Well, is there any possibility that the fact that you were smoking marijuana might have altered your perception at all? I don't think so. I don't think so because we just smoke all the time, and uh, it, it, it was just a thing. It, it, it was just a thing of the. Uh, it, it was just a. Uh, how do I say? Uh, it was out of the ordinary. Hmm. Well, look, uh, Jerry, there's certainly been a lot of reports of sightings like that. So uh, I don't know what it is that you saw, but uh, I certainly think uh, it could have been something extraterrestrial in nature. I don't know. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank, I don't know how to follow that. Neither do uh, I. Neither do I. <laughs> Can I have Jerry's number? Because I'd like to hook up with his drug dealer. <laughs> but anyway, uh, about the uh, Toys R Us is, um, in the Macy's in the Smith Haven Mall, uh, it's been about two months they've had their uh, little uh, Toys R Us thing. And, Frank, when I tell you, I took my youngest son up there. It was horrible. It was like a John Bargain type of deal. It was like all the when when they closed out the stores, everything was thrown on tables. Well, you, you're talking about in, in sort of the last last days, right, of Toys R Us. Yeah, yeah. I asked a few of the Macy's employees, and they're like, "It's basically whatever's out there. The boxes were open, and I was just my son was like, Dad, I don't want to deal with this because he he likes to put Legos together." And it was just like, it was horrendous, Frank, horrendous. Another great show, Frank, and I'll talk to you at some point this week. Thank you, Joe. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to uh, Andy on Staten Island. Andy B., uh, the founder of our theme song. Hello, Andy. Hey, hey, Frank. I'm working on two other ones. Love it. Give me a little second here. Midnight in the desert. Hanging out. 
Mr. Frank and listen to Andy play. Midnight, we're going to take that song. I love it, Andy. Well done. Well done, Andy. Absolutely love it. Hey, Andy, if people want to uh, see you perform anywhere or hear your music, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, on the Internet, you could pick up some Andy B. You just put in Andy B. Bad. Andy B. Band. Andy B. Bad. Like Johnny oh, B. Good. Oh, I got it. Andy B. Bad. Like uh, like Johnny B. Bad. Yeah. Um, and they he go- clips me from a movie called Beach Street. I was in the movie in 1984, and it's up there. You just say Beach Street audition scene. Love it. And I'll show up. Love it. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Astoria. Hello, Joe. Joe. Hey, hello. How hey. are you, Frank? Hey, what's on your mind, Joe? Okay. Uh, I was just wanting to talk about, you're talking about UFOs. I was born in Africa, Frank, in Angola. And my dad had a coffee plantation. And in the middle of the night, when I was about eight years old, I used to take my shotgun and go with my two little buddies there. We'd go hunting. And one time I'm coming up a trail, and I swear, right in front of me, there's this huge thing that just stared at me. And then all of a sudden, it just just like it wasn't even there. And uh, also, I want to... You said that you and Curtis are friends. You sure fools me, man. Because uh, you, that thing with the egg salad, that you left the egg salad in the refrigerator for two weeks, so you had a burp every hour. You mean that's all not true? Joe, I, I can't even believe I'm still having this conversation. Joe, <laughs> of, Joe of course it's not true. I, I give up. I just, I give up. I can't. I'm no longer, we're no longer taking Curtis questions. No longer taking Curtis questions at all. I just can't. Wake up! I, 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 he's got the whole world fooled. I just, I don't understand it. Um, How stupid is that? The original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, original Rick. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, about, the, about the word best friend, I think, uh, at least I, for me, I use it as a grading system. You know, you start off with, I always say, one of my best friends. Because your best friend, I guess, would be your bestest friend. But it's best friend, good friends, friends, acquaintances. I hate them. You know, there's there's ratings. So people are just letting you know where, where that person stands in, in the scheme of things when they're talking. Like, it wasn't just a friend that said it. It was my best friend. That's why I'm upset. You see what I'm saying? But why can't you say you, – why can't you say same sentence, it wasn't just my friend, it was a, a very close friend? Why can't you say that? Well, I think that's what they're saying when they say good friends. It's just, you know, a, a, a different way of saying yeah, it. Yeah, I, I don't like it. I got to tell you, Rick. I'm not crazy about it. You use that term uh, best friend, Matt Blaze? Not anymore. No? When, when One of you, my when best you, friends. When you were nine? Yeah, you, when I was like in yeah, high school. Right, that make, makes sense. Adults and That was it. Adults. Now it's like one of my best friends. Adults shouldn't do that, in my view. All right, 800-848-9222. We have a first-timer. Josh calling from Jerusalem, Israel. Hello, Josh. Good morning to you. Josh. We're, we're seven hours ahead of you, so here it's about 1030 Oh, wonderful. That's a very civilized. I don't, I don't get a chance to listen to you when I'm in New York because I'm generally sleeping, but here I listen to you every day because it's uh, bright and early here. We love it. And uh, I want to talk. Go ahead. 
I want to talk to you about UFOs. And uh, I, um, I'm, I'm sort of quite normal, and I do not smoke weed. And uh, but I had perfect. an interesting experience um, back in the late uh, '50s. Um, I was always a science fiction reader. Uh, I read almost everything, you know, starting from nine years old. And my my family always made fun of me. Yeah, flying saucers and aliens and blah blah blah. But anyway, one night uh, it was late April. It was a beautiful clear night, and my father, my sister, and I went into our backyard in Kew Gardens, New York. And um, I was resting with my eyes closed, and I heard my father say, oh, I wonder what that is. And my sister said, yeah, look at that. And that just piqued my interest. So I opened my eyes, and I saw something fascinating. Across this perfectly clear black sky, there was a formation, literally a formation of eight, um, they call it the cigar-shaped objects. There was one in the front. There was Two, 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 and one in the back, perfect eight formation. They were uh, phosphorescent blue with a red tail and just gliding across the sky. This is the late 50s. We we didn't have jets flying around. And we were standing at them for about possibly two minutes because they were very high, obviously very high in the sky, until they disappeared over the horizon. But So I I sort of like forgot about it until the next day. The next day, we get the uh, newspaper, and it was the Long Island Press. And um, the the secondary headline was, 20,000 people call into the police stations reporting alien objects. And um, the police seemed to have called in to the Suffolk County Air Force Base, and they scrambled their planes to go up and investigate. They didn't find anything. But... After that time, there's something out there, and I'm not saying they're little green men sure, floating sure. around. Yeah, there's no way to know um, what they are. There's something out there. There's some, yeah, I think you nailed it, Josh. I think that's um, that's exactly my uh, point, right? These these sightings are confirmed. These videos are authentic. So the question is not, are there UAPs or UFOs? The question is, what are they? Is it something that our own government is doing? Is it something a foreign government is doing? Is it something a high-level military contractor is doing? Or is it something otherworldly? Is it something from the future? Some people have theorized that. I have no idea. I just asked the questions. 800-848-9222. Sherman is in Manhattan. Hello, Sherman. Uh, Hello, Frank. Uh, Fantastic uh, topic. Uh, I don't get how we are so casual about the fact that things, beings, whatever word we want to use to describe what we're not sure about, uh, of course, in my opinion, they're hostile. If somebody comes up to your property or wherever you're living and they keep coming around and they never say hello to you, they never make eye contact with you, they never make any attempt to communicate with you, then what? conclusion should we come to of course they're hostile and it's disrespectful i mean if you got on some ship and you went to some planet the second or first thing you would do is want to communicate with beings or creatures that you encountered right because you're a reasonable intelligent person with no ill will now here you got something that is just out of this world can dive into the water navy pilots have witnessed that best witnesses you can get 
military people. They can go in the water. They go thousands of miles an hour in a second. They can, uh, there's zero sound, okay? Uh, uh, so, you know, the, the technology is literally might make a person snap or, or lose their mind if we uh, had access to uh, this kind of stuff. So we're like in the Stone Age compared to them. So what are they doing? Are they communicating? Hey, how are you? Do you need some assistance? We got this medicine. We got this. We got this technology. Nothing. We get nothing from them. We get the silent treatment. So what conclusion should we come to? And they're harassing and stalking military uh, ships and planes. And they've been doing this for over 50, 60 years. Mm. And as I told you before, the Romans, when they were fighting and going, conquering and doing different things, they were being followed by what they described as shields that were on fire above them. Uh, the Vatican has these uh, the documents when they were communicating with, with, with each other in Latin, the Roman sources, because that's what they spoke. So clearly these things are not on our side. <laughs> they don't have our best interest in mind, Okay. If they're harassing and stalking military uh, ships in the middle of the night, following them for hours, if they're stalking jet planes, if they're harassing military pilots, if they never stop and drop us a note, drop us an email, if they don't communicate with us telepathically, then their intention is not good. Well, Sherman, there's also there's also the possibility that we're talking about multiple species here. Right. I mean, I've talked with Dr. Michael Sala and others before. He's of the belief that uh, some species are hostile and others are not. So, I mean, would, there could be, you know, just like, um, you know, the way that United, the United States does things is not the way North Korea does things. That could be the case on a planetary level as well, right? Uh, I would um, cautiously agree with that. But again, I would use any reasonable person as an example. Eventually, yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm sure there's more than one creature or being that's coming here, but which, uh, none of them are communicating with us. Mm. None of them are, you know, the, I understand that maybe they could be sensitive to uh, being around humans or disease. I don't know, uh, but they can make some attempt. If they are on ships and planes that can do what those things are doing, I think leaving us a little note would be pretty easy for them to do. And so they're not doing that. And to me, that's hostile. Sherman, th- when you're harassing us. Thank you for the call and uh, such a thought out, well thought out, very clearly stated call as well. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, 800-848-9222. You will continue with your calls in a bit. We're going to go through the mail in just a moment. Uh, so if you want to get your letter read on air, you can uh, send me an email, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at WABCRadio.com. And if uh, you want to send me some snail mail, you can do so by uh, sending it to P.O. Box 1777. My attention, Frank Morano, New York, New York, 10163. So that's P.O. Box 1777. New York, uh, attention, Frank Morano, New York, New York, 10163. The mail, straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off you. You'd be like heaven to touch I want to hold you so much 
off of you. Still trying to get Frankie Valley on this show. We had a, a good conversation. We were poised to get him on. And then uh, I don't know what happened. I got to reach out to his folks again to see if we can't make that uh, can't make that happen. All right. In the meantime, if you are a fan of the written word rather than the spoken word, now is your time to shine because it is our weekly look at This comes to us uh, via Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. Hi, I am from the Bronx. This is from a gentleman named Joe. Hi, I am from the Bronx. I listen to 7070 Watch all the time. Love your show. I don't mean any disrespect saying this. By the way, can, can we pause there? You always know when somebody begins the letter by saying, I don't mean any disrespect saying this. You know you're about to get socked. You, you know there's some major disrespect coming your way. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to say anything. You, you, you would just say it. It's like if somebody ever calls and say, you know, this is not supposed to sound racist. Well, of course, you know, the next words out of their mouth are going to be totally racist. All right. Um, let me continue with Joe's letter. I don't mean any disrespect saying this, but when you mentioned that people should stop smoking and then you said that the money they are spending on cigarettes is, quote, literally going up in smoke, close quote, that was wrong. It's unused and it it's it's there's a again, the irony in someone trying to correct my usage with typos that make the word a sentence fragment is not lost on me. But this is what this is what the sentence actually says. I'm going to read this verbatim. This is the person correcting my use of the word literally. It's unused as an expression in this case. Literally was capital wrong here. If people took their money and they were burning it, then you can say literally. I noticed that a lot of people use it incorrectly or unnecessarily, like for emphasis. Example, people will say... The house is literally across the street. Literally is unnecessary here. The statement is self-explanatory. I don't see literally as an emphasis word. Better words for emphasis are very, extremely, and really. Example, the stove got really hot. Well, Joe, you don't know very much, do you? The bottom line, Joe, is we've chronicled this. The word literally no longer means literally. There are, if you go to a dictionary, pull it up, there are now multiple accepted words for, uh, accepted definitions for the word literally, including the way I used it, which is the secondary definition of it. But honestly, because we're talking about smoking and spending money on smoking, it's pretty close to the first definition of the word literally. Don't let that dictionary get dusty. Check it out. See if I'm right. This is, this is a uh, postcard this comes to us from Henry from Manhattan. I have to tell you, I would say about 50 to 60% of all the mail correspondence we get, the snail mail, 
is from Henry in Manhattan, and we appreciate that. He's keeping the Postal Service in business. Um, please can... Okay, it starts... The first thing you sa- it says at the top of this postcard is, Frank... Uh, no, it says, please consider some of the implications, exclamation point. Then he goes on to say, Frank, your anecdote this morning about the temperature difference between Las Vegas, Nevada versus Las Vegas, New Mexico illustrates a new positive, a new positive, I don't know, a new positive people ought to follow or a new, yeah, a new prose that people ought to follow. I I don't know that word. Um, Mainly when stating the name of a U.S. or foreign city also include its postal zip code. Henry, nobody's going to do that. No, what are you going to commit every city's zip code to memory? That makes no sense. Henry, that's that's absurd. It's, it's absolutely absurd. All right, uh, this is uh, an email from Lori. Came just uh, thirty-eight minutes ago. Subject: I think the caller meant indentured servants. His great great etc. grandfather might have been Irish, according to what I can find. The Jews were not slaves in Egypt. Thank you, Lori. This is uh, from Carol. Subject: Your party. She writes, if you would have cooked a tray of peppers and onions and put the sausage in it and then had the tray and then had a tray of club rolls, you would have had no leftovers. You cooked the peppers and onions in the barbecue in a tin. I could go for one right now. Carol, we had no more room in our refrigerator. What are we supposed to do with this? We could have saved it, but we, we don't have any. We didn't have any more room in our refrigerator. The refrigerator was full. There's nowhere else to put it. Couldn't give it away. We tried to give it away. Nobody wanted it. Uh, this is a postcard from. Madeline in Albuquerque. I love that name, Madeline. I, uh, if I ever had a daughter, I would want to name her Madeline. My aunt is named Madeline. My great-grandmother is named Madeline. Uh, Madeline in Albuquerque writes, Hi, Frank. You must get tired of hearing how much your boy looks like you. He is adorable. I do not get tired of hearing that. That's very, very kind. Thank you very much. This is from Ellen. Uh, I got this email, and I really have to tell you that I have decided Ellen is very prolific in the Facebook group. You could see her posts just about every day. Uh, just going to Facebook, Morano Radio fans and haters. I decided after reading this email that she totally gets me. She gets me maybe more than any person on the face of the earth. I've never met Ellen, I don't think. But um, I decided I am going to hire Ellen to write my eulogy. And, you know, hopefully I won't need it for a long time. But she gets me. And she gets the... The whole gestalt of Frankism. Hi, Frank. Great show as usual yesterday morning. I've been thinking about your audience, those who call in, those who post on your pages, as well as those who write to you. I'm convinced that such a varied audience is truly unusual. They all represent a microcosm of society. They're all kinds of people, those of various political stripes, of different socioeconomic groups, of various ethnicities and religions, of varying educational backgrounds, and those from all over the U.S. and the world. You obviously speak to all kinds of people. We all look forward to your nightly gift never knowing what topic you'll be addressing or what guests you'll interview, but waiting with bated breath to find out. Believe it or not, I myself set an alarm each night to listen to you. I believe that. More and more people are writing to me that they do that. 
And it's obvious that the reason your show had such broad appeal is the unique product you've created. You are a raconteur and interviewer par excellence. I wish for you much more continued success and for myself many more sleepless nights. Thank you very much, Ellen. You know, I often wonder, do do Kenneth, Matt Blaze, and Alex Barnard appreciate the, the, I'll go so far as to say, the genius that they have such close proximity to on a daily basis? I mean, what I wouldn't have given if I were in their position to be able to work with one of the, the greats, as Ellen describes. Now, here's an email from from Leo in Manhattan, who Kenneth calls Neil. Uh, this is from, no, this is from Instagram, actually. Leo sends me these long Instagram messages every day. I have to tell you, Leo, if you're listening, I very rarely read these. I don't know what prompted me to read it. The bottom line is they're just too long. They should be 140 characters. They should be 240 characters or less. Other than that, it should be sent in an email. Uh, and that goes for the Facebook people, too. It's too long, too long. If it's more than 140 characters, send it in an email. It's too much to scroll on Instagram like this. This was sent at 2.30 this morning, Eastern. You did it again, exclamation point. You don't understand blank about cars. I'm a car guy all my life and was for years owner of car dealership in in Stuttgart when I came from Germany to New York. I was still for a while making money with selling Jap cars to Germany as a brown dealing, which you, of course, have no idea what it means. When I call your show with really good saving advice exactly for the situation that you described, two people in the household sharing car or having two cars, there is a third option. But even though I said before I get to the subject, I want to send message to previous caller. You let me say one sentence and cut me off. It's so an- annoying, especially when I know I had something helpful that some listeners can that can help listeners save money. And you engage in back and forth conversation even with Idiots, advice on the subject. How to save money is go to dollar store. And you should know that I had something real helpful to say, but you shut off my mic immediately. This is blank that Rita throw book on them, close quote, doing to every other caller that in the middle of very first sentence, she cuts him off. By the way, shutting his line and then using his name, keep talking next minute, pretending that he's still on the other side of the line. But you as a listener never hear one more word from these callers. And most of the time, you have no idea what the caller wanted to say because she just keep talking about one of her evening agendas unrelated to what the caller started saying. Well, Frank, if you want to slyly, I think you mean slowly, if you want to slowly start sliding down, just, I don't know what word this is, glope, and you are jealous of her spot on this station where she is with Dominic scratching the bottom of pot then that's the good direction, just ignoring people that listen to you every night, the entire show, and maybe one day you can replace her. It's really unfair that you, for some reason, I get the redhead stepchild treatment. Every single person calling you exchange at least two to three turns. Me? Cut off before I can reply. Um, wow, wow, wow. Well, I, I will say this. You know, Leo has a way of uh, keeping me humble. That's for sure. Throw the book at you. Uh This is an email from Maria. Subject, barbecue. My cousins came in from Florida for the first time since COVID. We had a barbecue for them last weekend. Biggest hits were shrimp kebabs and hot dogs. Very easy. My next go-to barbecue menu. Well, that's really revolutionary. Hot dogs at a barbecue. That's exactly what I ate at your barbecue. Hot dog and shrimp kebabs. That's what I think prompted her email. Um. 
This is an email from Georgiana. This is in response to the person that said we, the words I do at a wedding should be replaced with I'll try. Hi, Frank. I'll try means I'm not going to. Don't amend the vows. Great show. A good book written by Peter Benchley, The Girl of the Sea of Cortez, intriguing story of human nature and the wonders of the deep blue sea. Easy read that can transport you to another world. Nobody should buy soda. It's a good-for-nothing corrosive product. My parents had seven marriages between them also. I only had one. I hope I never see him again. I was only 19 when I married him, divorced shortly after. I wasn't always smart. I was a great shortstop on my softball team as a kid. Next time you have a game for fundraiser, I'd like to play or be your photographer. So please invite me again. Last time I was suffering asthma and allergies. But I have good hand-eye coordination. I was wondering, too, how did Uma meet Bradley Cooper? My grandmother always said politicians are all actors out of work. They seem to go together. I need a good, decent lawyer for a co-op board dispute. Can you recommend anyone you know? I live in Bay Ridge. Your show flew tonight. It was very good. Best regards to Rachel. And uh, ooh, ooh, child is a better pick than shut up a you face for young Carmine. Hopefully the bobbleheads will take off. I think they will. Stay well. Thanks, Frank. Uh, Georgiana. Okay. That's a very thoughtful email. That's the kind of thing that really should be posted in the Facebook group. Uh, just search on uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, this is an email from Tom. Subject, MBS. You are in... Con- By the way, I got a number of emails this way uh, to the, on this subject. This is just the best written and most representative of what people are saying. Uh, subject, MBS. You are inconsistent, parenthesis, what else is new, in deploring Biden's meeting MBS while you enthusiastically... Support presidents who meet and or make nice with dictators who are as evil or more evil than MBS, such as Kim Jong-un or Putin. The real politic justification you employ for dealing with those other leaders who are human rights violators should also apply to the butcher slash oil supplier MBS. Well, first, let me say I am very open about my hypocrisy. You know, you have other guys that try and run away from being hypocritical. I don't. I wear my hypocrisy on my sleeve. I I have always said hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. I have no problem with being hypocritical. None. That being said, I'm not saying we shouldn't deal with Saudi Arabia. I'm not saying we shouldn't meet with the leaders of the Saudi Arabian government. What I have a problem with is whoever the president is, the Bushes, Obama, Trump, Clinton, Biden, all doing the same thing. All literally bowing to these Saudi princes, in the case of the Bushes, kissing them, um, while they're sponsoring terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, while they're participating in a conspiracy that led to the 9-11 attacks. Now, whatever you want to say about Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un has never, never, never participated in a conspiracy Uh, that resulted in a terrorist attack on American citizens on American soil. Never happened. Uh, And the same is true of Vladimir Putin. So uh, I think we should deal with everybody. Saudi Arabia, Iran, Qatar, Kuwait, uh, Yemen, North Korea, Russia. If there's a country, we should deal with whoever the leader's there. What we've done with Saudi Arabia is very different. We have handed them the keys to the car. 
We have handed them the keys to the American car and said, you're in charge. We're following your lead. As long as you keep having oil, barrels of oil sold in dollars, we'll do whatever you want. The control that the Saudis have over think tanks, over government, over the media, that's what I have a problem with. Um, The day that Russia and Kim Jong-un and Iran have that same sort of clout in the United States, you'll hear me say the same thing. Maybe. Because I reserve my right to be hypocritical. Um, Okay. This This is heavy. I like this. Okay. This is a big envelope. This is from Irene in Middletown, New Jersey. Ooh, there's a lot of stuff in here. I'm going to open the letter first. Very nice handwriting. Okay. Dear Frank, in honor of Carmine's most special christening, I'm sending young Carmine some keepsakes. Oh, that's nice. May he, your wife Rachel, and the whole family enjoy good health and peace among yourselves. Comments on Pete Davidson as a 60-year-old female... We view him, despite his tattoos, as a goofy, funny high school type who respects some women and treats them with number one respect, whose rap videos are the best I've ever heard. A talented comedian, actor, writer, rap artist is very attractive. Well, Pete Davidson, things don't work out with uh, Kim Kardashian. You might want to give Irene in Middletown a call. Two, you need to love your three cats more equally. As a cat stepdad, you adapted them. You adopted them when you married your wife, and you should find them. You should find time for meaningful life cat interactions. As an example for young Carmine. Okay, thank you for talking all night to us who can't sleep because of pain and stress. Thanks for listening. Sincerely, Irene. Caller Irene from Central Jersey. And then look what she included here. There's some great stuff. This is. Uh, Okay, there's a cat. There's a like a cat candy bar. This is a, this is a salmon flavored candy bar. It's breakaway cat treats for your three loving cats. Love them all equally, even the aloof one who has legitimate prior issues. Tell them this is from caller Irene in Central Jersey. What else do we have here? This is really nice. Wow, some old stamps. Wow, some old currency, some old coins, some Canadian currency. This is really um, very kind, Irene. Pre-1920 currency. This is this is something. Uh, I, I can't even. Th- this is like Christmas. This is like a, a stocking store. Uh, actually, I'm going to I'm going to take off the, all the labels that say Irene from Jersey and stick this in Carmine stocking for Christmas and tell them it's from me. Looks like my shopping is done for the year. Thank you, Irene. Wow. Or as we call Irene in the Morano household. Santa Claus. All right. So you hear comments pretty excited. Um, okay. Uh, Maria, um, this is one, uh, subject. Your show is a bore. You're right. You're a turtle buffoon. Hashtag Curtis. Um, <laughs> email Victoria. Thank you. Hi, Frank. Thanks for playing Cinnamon Girl this week and the ultra great Roll Over Beethoven. I'm going to go. I'm going to buy and put on the iPod. Always loved Cinnamon Girl. It's one of the greats. I grew up loving Chuck B. And then later in 1987, as soon as the the Hail Hail Rock and Roll movie came out, my boyfriend at the time, unless she just said BF, I don't think she means best friend, but um, my boyfriend at the time and I headed uptown to the Ziegfeld Theater to see it. 
Going there in those days for a movie was a special event for anyone. It's a great memory. My boyfriend wore a surgical coat for Halloween, and all around there were people on their way to Halloween events. I didn't dress up for some reason. I was someone who didn't put on a costume. I'd wear a black half mask, though. I remember we thought Keith looked kind of ancient. Funny to think about since so many decades went by since then. I think we all got used to Keith, the, the Keith wrecked look, and he just sort of got a little younger looking after that. Well, have a great rest of the, rest of the weekend. Look forward to your fab show. That's nice. Asher. Hey, Frank. How are you? At the risk of being judged inappropriately, I will take a risk and ask you about tonight's winning question being, who of your coworkers deserve a raise? I asked who you want to be with on a, de- desert I- on a deserted island. Admittedly subjective. Doesn't my question pose a deeply provocative, introspective assessment? of both your personality and your compatibility with anyone in history. We've corresponded previously, and I greatly appreciate your willingness to take the time and consideration in responding. I'm a regular listener of yours and wish I lived nearby to play some ping pong with you. Maybe a reconsidering of my award-winning question could allow you to graciously award me a WABC tie-dye T-shirt. Thanks for listening. God bless you and your family. Well, I will tell you, Asher, that was not my decision. I would have went with your question. I was, quite frankly, very surprised that uh, Matt Blaze, uh, Alex Barnard, and uh, Kenneth did not. But uh, that's the rules, and unfortunately, what they say goes. That is the rules, and I can tell you exactly why that was not picked as the best question. First of all, that is not the first time we have ever heard, if you've been on a desert island, blah, 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 pick something. So that's why. It's not that creative. It's not that intuitive of anything. Not worthy of a T-shirt. No. In your view. Oh, this is an interesting one. They've written on the envelope. Uh, you want to say something? Go ahead, Alex. Go ahead. You came in here. No, right? I mean, I just basically what Matt said. You've had a question like that before. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. true. But we also had the radio producer question, and you picked that the previous week. So, Well, sorry. Right. I yeah. wasn't here for that. Okay. Yeah, true. Right. This, is a, this person wrote on the back of this envelope. I don't know who this is from. But, uh, it's from New York City. But the person wrote on the back of the envelope, it's good to see Sliwa has changed. He no longer hates Trump, the police, Sharpton, or maybe he's no longer jealous of people who are better at controlling the press. Okay. Really? I'm going to like this letter already. Okay. Open this letter up. Dear Frank, your worship of Sliwa's crimes amount to lies. He changed the police with kid. He charged the police with kidnapping his wife. And causing her a miscarriage. Two, read a history book on Germany, World War II. Hitler was a head... See, you know what? It's really difficult for me to respect the people that have such poor handwriting. I can't make it. Hitler was a head of the eyes of German people, mainly because of the economy. Three, WABC will never be on par professionally with Alex, Barry G, Barry Farber, Bob Law, Leonard Lopate. Four... The morning show hosts are losers, felons, and I, the last word is bl- is blurred. I can't see it. Five, your audience callers are very common people. Uh, from a friend. Well, I'd hate to see um, what that letter would sound like if it was from an enemy. All right. Ken uh, from Manhattan emails, Frank, glad you're pleased with your new worker, Kenneth. It's definitely okay that you don't call him Kenny. I go by Ken, not Kenneth or Kenny. Maybe it's a self-esteem issue. 
I don't feel worthy of more syllables than one. Ha! Just kidding. The real reason I'm writing this, this is to say thanks for keeping me on your mind and on your email list. Someday the right thing will come along and I will be able to participate. Thank you, Ken. By the way, if you want to be added to my email list, just email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com, and I'll, and I'll, um, you know, I'll throw you on there. All right, if we didn't get to you uh, this week, you can write to us, frank.morano at wabcradio.com, and we'll tr- hopefully get to you on the next edition of... Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. That my best friend, she a real bad bitch, got her own money. She don't need no n- on the dance floor. She had two, three drinks, now she's twerking. She throw it out and come back in. That's my best friend. Uh, see, this song is Best Friend from um, Sweetie and Doja Cat. This is exactly the kind of person I see using the term best friend. It's just, it's too much. It's To me, it's very low rent. I don't, I don't like it. I'm sorry if you use it. Um, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we have covered. I'll tell you who I am shocked I um, I have not heard from. This week, I mean, uh, this morning, my wife, Rachel, because here's what happened. My son was so cranky all day yesterday. I came home around 6.15 in the morning and I spent a couple hours with him and he was pretty good with me. Change him, feed him. Uh, We watched an episode of the Orville. He bounced around a little bit. Pretty good with me. Then around eight o'clock, I go to sleep. I'm woken up repeatedly with him crying. And then ultimately I'm up for good because um, I hear him crying downstairs. And, even, you know, even though my wife usually tries to let me sleep until 3 p.m., didn't work out. I, I go down and I could tell she needed, you know, some help with him. So I, I take him and I'm spending some time with him. And she said he won't nap all day. You know, ideally he'll nap every two hours for an hour or so. Yesterday was not that the case. He wouldn't nap for more than a half hour, 45 minutes. So around 3.30, no, around 3 or so, maybe 3.30, I try and put him down for a nap, and he falls asleep. Falls asleep for uh, around 3 o'clock, falls asleep for about a half hour. Half hour, 40 minutes, which was great, because that means I got to sleep for another 30 minutes. So then um, my wife says to me, I have a work call at 5, meaning she has a work call. And... He is going to need to nap. We usually put him to bed around 7.30. He's going to need to nap. He's not going to make it all the way to 7.30. He's going to be way too cranky. So what do I do? I put him to bed around 5.30. Lo and behold, stays asleep. 5.30, 6.30, 7.30, 8.30, 9.30. When I left my house at 10, he was still asleep. So the smart money said, and what Rachel was preparing, she said, all right, well, he never sleeps more than seven or eight hours, so he's going to be up at 1 or 2 a.m. asking to be fed. And I told her, well, at least you guys will have quality radio programming to listen to. And um, she, um, you know, she put him to bed, and I was sure I was going to see a message from her at some point in the last three hours indicating that he's been up since some ungodly hour. But wouldn't that be something 
if he stays asleep from 5.30 p.m. until, I don't know, 5 a.m., that would be wild. We'll see what happens. He had a very difficult time sleeping <laughs> all day yesterday. Uh, all right, 800-848-9222. John is in Kearney, New Jersey. Hello, John. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Uh, you know, John, uh, I, don't, I don't want you to rush your point. Let me put you back on hold. We'll take you first after the top of the hour uh, rather than give you 40 seconds because we give everybody other than Leo a lot of as much time as they want to say whatever they want. Uh, I wonder why. All right. Um, hey, coming up, you know who retired at a very young age? I'll tell you. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Until next hour. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A couple of weeks ago, we did a really interesting caller segment on people who stayed too long, right, in whatever profession they were in, sports, politics, business, uh, entertainment, radio, and I thought there were some really great caller suggestions. Well, I read an article over the weekend about somebody that retired at a very young age in the prime of their career. And it got me thinking, who do you think called it quits, retired in any field way too early, way too young? Could be an athlete, could be a radio person, could be a sports figure, could be whatever, you know, you name it, mobster, uh, actor, whatever. 800-848-9222. I'll tell you, the person that made me think of this is Rick Astley. You know, Rick Astley, the singer best known for that song 30 years ago, Never Gonna Give You Up. Very popular song. He retired after gaining global fame. There you go. Everybody knows that. You've been Rickrolled many times. This is why this video, this music video is one of only like five or six songs in history to have over a billion views. And I think 80% of them are unintentional. But Rick Astley, at the height of his fame, he was a global phenomenon, retired at the age of 27. 27 years old. Now, uh, why did he do it? Well, we found a couple of um, a couple of th- this is him on one interview show. And even though I asked for the source of this particular interview show, I'm not sure which one it is. But here is one one interview in which he describes his decision to retire at the age of 27 years old. 
basically retired at 27. Yeah. Was it because of that kind of instant, overwhelming celebrity? Yeah, it was, I had four or five years of a crazy life, really. And uh, I think when our daughter was born, a little light went on and made me think, you know what, life has to include other things. Because I think if you're going to try and have a pop career like that and keep it going at that level, oh, yeah. it's everything. And it's like the athletes today. You see, you know, certain athletes manage it well and they do really well. Other ones kind of struggle. Sure. And I think anything where, you, where you're forced into that thing. And I say forced, I chose it, don't get me of wrong. Course. But I'm saying you, you, you have to make that choice and commit right. to it. And I just thought it's either one or the other and I, I chose the other. Oh, and no regrets, I'm sure. No, I don't have any regrets, no, because I had a, a good... Let's face it, most people in pop music get four or five years. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I probably left just before they threw me out anyway. No, you know, that's so. not true. <laughs> So, uh, and you know what's interesting about him? He is now making a comeback. Uh, in the 2000s, he decided to start making music again. And uh, as I understand it, he is making music again now. Now, um, Alex found this clip of him on the Today Show in Australia giving a little bit of a different answer as to why he retired at the age of 27. Why did you decide to walk away from it all? I don't necessarily feel my personality really suited being a pop star if I'm honest you know I just didn't really like having to kind of smile all the time and <laughs> and um and just be in that kind of fame mode if you know what I mean so sports uh radio journalism entertainment who do you think retired too soon and what do you make of that answer um, it's, I thought, I think pretty interesting and I'm interested to see how people are responding to his, his comeback. Uh, by the way, I want to give a shout out to Juan Soto, the home run derby champion. Remember that, especially for those of you that are playing the thousand dollar minute in 20 minutes, won that home run derby last night. Congratulations, Juan Soto. But, um, so I'd love to hear your list of anybody that you think has retired prematurely or while they were still in their prime. And I was trying to think myself, you know, one of the people on radio that I think left what they were doing way too, and and I'm sorry to make everything through the prism of radio, but that's just the thing that I'm most familiar with and I'm the biggest fan of. One person that left at the height of their talent and popularity on radio, Matt Drudge. Matt Drudge's Sunday night radio show was one of the best radio shows in America, maybe the best. And it was only once a week, but there was nothing like it, nothing like it. And I I know he didn't need the money, probably was making millions from that website, The Drudge Report. That show was so terrific, in my opinion. And he left at the height of his fame. He just didn't want to do it anymore. Didn't want to do it. And uh, I'm curious who else fits that description. 800-848-9222. I'll tell you, on a somewhat related note, although not really, the uh, a lot of people are having some fun with um, Beanie Feldstein. She's the sister of uh, actor Jonah Hill. She's an actress in her own right, a comedic actress. And uh, she's very good. I've seen her in some films. She's funny. Young woman. And... She is now, She was, and there's still commercials to this effect, she was the lead actress in the Broadway revival of Funny Girl. And she announced on Instagram about a week ago that she was leaving the production at the end of this month, two months earlier than expected. So she wrote, playing Fanny Bryce on Broadway has been a lifelong dream of mine. 
and doing so for the last few months has been a great joy and true honor. Once the production decided to take the show in a different direction, I made the extremely difficult decision to step away sooner than expected. Now, evidently, some of the speculation is that the reason I don't don't have any inside information, but some of the speculation is that she's stepping aside because she wasn't good enough. She couldn't uh, she couldn't handle the rigors of the role. And that's why she's stepping aside. And there's a lot of people making fun of her. And I don't know if Dennis Quirk from the court officers union had something to do with her departure the way that he did uh, Chief Judge Janet DeFiore or if there's something else at play here. But um, I I feel bad uh, because you have all these people who don't have any of her talent. And I don't know what she's like as a singer, but um, she, you know, she is a performer. And you have all these people that don't have any any of the courage to ever set foot on a stage or before a camera, all critiquing her and, you know, and saying really awful things about her. And I really feel bad. And she's only, I mean, she's in her 20s. She's 29. And you have people that are, are writing her off as a total failure, at which is certainly not the case. She's young enough and talented enough and I'm sure well-connected enough that she can have any number of pathways to a career comeback. And unlike in the days when George Reeves was a star, if you're famous now, I feel like you could kind of make something work for you. You know, she could go on Cameo. I suggested that to Curtis the other day. I was surprised he wasn't already on Cameo. So hopefully he'll he'll do that and he'll be able to make some money and pay for all these 900 children that he has. But um, I was wondering if you were to give advice to Beanie Feldstein, Someone who was in some very good films, book smart, ladybird, who I think putting it charitably has suffered a career setback here and very publicly in the eyes of everybody. What advice would you give her? I doubt she's ready to retire the way Rick Astley did in his 20s. But what advice would you give her on her next step? So those are the, the two questions that I would love your take on either one. One uh, let, let's make a list of folks that retired too early or uh, too early for your tastes, really, when they were still in their prime. And two, what advice would you give to Beanie Feldstein? Ivan is in Woodhaven. Hello, Ivan. I'll make it fast because I got five really good ones. Great. Uh, in sports, these are easy. Retired at the very top of the game. Borg in tennis, very young, 30, maybe 29. Brown in football, again, well, let me get you to pause there because sure. I thought of Jim Brown also. But in my view, Jim Brown was almost like The Rock. The Rock left wrestling at the height of his talent and his popularity. But The Rock did the same thing that Jim Brown did. They chose to transition out of their sport um, into the movies. So it's not as if Jim Brown left the public eye. Just like The Rock, he just went into a different direction, like kind of like uh, Tiki Barber or even Michael Strahan to some extent. I can't argue with that. Koufax, who was, of course, forced to retire, but he won 27 games in his very last season after five or six incredible seasons. Right. So Koufax was forced to retire due to an injury, right? Uh, arthritis. Arthritis. Uh, so, but he was, he was at the top. The very last season mm-hmm. was maybe his best season. And right. I got two more from entertainment, okay. the last of which – will uh, be amazing to you, I think. Uh, obviously, Greta Garbo Greta is Garbo. one. Yeah. Now, here's one. Before I tell you who it is, 
uh, retired with a certain uh, degree of fame, literally in the, in the early 30s, came back in the 60s, and then gained her greatest fame probably in the 80s. I love this. Now, tell me who this is. Alberta Hunter. Alberta Hunter. Um, I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say it. Who is Alberta Hunter? Oh, she was uh, uh, a great jazz singer. Uh, in, yeah, in I'm, I'm looking her up now. Before Billie Holiday uh, and now the, the and this other famous jazz singer. That was before Billie Holiday, who was, for some reason the name escapes me now, but she was in that era. Uh, she retired and became a nurse. Huh. Uh, and like I said, uh, she was rediscovered in the 60s and then in the 80s uh, was uh, gained her greatest fame. Yeah, this is really and interesting. I'm reading you, about YouTube, her, her, her songs from the 80s and her performances. They're incredible. Yeah, I'm reading about her now. That's interesting. Thank you uh, for that. That's a great list, Ivan. Well done. 800-848-9222. You know, that reminds me, listening to his story about um, Alberta Hunter, it reminds me of Dolores Hart. Do you know who Dolores Hart was? Dolores Hart, she was never a huge star, but she was an ascendant starlet. She was doing really well in movies. Uh, She had done a a couple of big movies, and she co-starred with Elvis Presley in a very big film called Loving You in 1957. And at the height of her ascendant stardom, she chose to walk away and become a nun left making movies with Elvis and chose to walk away and become a a nun at the age of 24 years old, right when she was in her prime as an actress. I don't know a lot of folks that would do that. I give her credit because she's very devoted to her her faith, but uh, that's somebody that I think as a performer retired too young. See, Sandy Koufax was on my list too, but if you're forced to retire due to injury, does that really... Is that somebody that chose to retire too young? See, Rick Astley, he clearly made a choice. I don't think you could say that. Greta Garbo, she made a choice. I don't think you could say that of Sandy Koufax. If you're in so much pain that you can't pitch, that's not a choice. You're forced. 800-848-9222. Alex Barnard, you're not thinking of retiring, are you? Well, no, not yet. Of course not. I'm way too young. I'm only 23. Well, Rick Astley was uh, around that same age. Well, true, but um, the two that I have, one's more of like an, a, a personal indulgence for me in my in terms of my own music taste, uh, a band that goes by the name of Slayer, who they were, they were in their 50s by the time they called it quits, but there was still plenty of tread left on the tire when they, when they it? called it quits. Slayer? Yes, yeah, Slayer, one of the most influential metal bands of all time. In terms of comedy, though, somebody who I think called it quits too early with his TV show, was Dave Chappelle. Interesting. um, I'm not a really big fan of his stand-up now. I think he's trying a little too hard to go to be like the anti-cancel culture comedian, which gets a little tired, in my opinion. But Chappelle's show was, I thought, fairly revolutionary and really one of the funniest shows of all time. And um, he had to... after only two seasons, or actually, well, there was three, but the third season was hosted by uh, Donnell Rawlings, uh, and it just wasn't as good. And I think there was something about like a dispute with Comedy Central that sort of, plus uh, some mental health issues that Chappelle was suffering from kind of at the time that f- sort of 
um, made him all of a sudden go, you know what, the show's over. But um, I think he, if he had sort of kept at it, it could have been That's interesting. one That's of the funniest shows one. ever. You know, it's funny. Your suggestion of Dave Chappelle, it leads me to think of um, someone else, another comedian that retired at the height of his popularity, and that was George Carlin. Now, Carlin did come back. But comedy is like one of those things. It's almost like talk radio. I, I don't think you can step away and then continue at the same level that you that you were doing. So that is interesting. And you know what? Someone else, uh, two other names come to mind just in talking with, uh, with Alex here about the Chappelle situation. I'm less inspired by the Slayer suggestion but uh, about uh, Chappelle. Someone else that did sort of leave at the height of his popularity was Jack Parr. Jack Parr, when he was hosting The Tonight Show, was doing an incredible uh, job in terms of ratings. And and he left, and then he went to primetime, and then he left the network in 1970. He was only, I don't know, I don't know, 52 when he left um, NBC. He was still a huge star, could have performed for a long time. He could have been. He could have done Carson's tenure only longer. I mean, who knows if it would have had that same staying power that Carson did. And the other one, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. See, that's what I get for not writing it down. I forgot what I was going to say. All right, 800-848-92. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. Dorothy Commodore. Dorothy Commodore, the uh, original dot-com. Uh, do you know uh, Dor- Dorothy Commodore, uh, Commongore from Citizen Kane? She, uh, although apparently um, she was blacklisted. I just looked that up. That's why she disappeared. She was apparently blacklisted. That I did not know. Do you think Jerry Seinfeld left at the right time? Or yes. do you think he could have got another year? No, he certainly could have gotten another year. Or but two. I, I think it was the right time. But it, it's also, he didn't leave and be just forgotten. He's still doing television shows. It's still on. He's still doing. <laughs> Seinfeld's still Yeah, on. no, I know. But he's still doing uh, stand-up. Oh, the comedian cars. Yeah, he's yeah. and which Coffee, are, both whatever. of which are very popular. His stand-up's yeah. very popular. The comedian in the car drinking uh, coffee is very popular. He did some movies. He did B-movie. He did that arc on Curb Your Enthusiasm. So it's not as if he stopped uh, performing. He just yeah. stopped doing a sitcom. Yeah, I like that. You watch, I'm sure you watch the special when, he, when they show his notes that he wrote. He yeah, that was interesting. Everything yeah. out on that yellow legal pad. That was interesting. Yeah, I did see that. That's pretty cool. 800-848-9222. Lenny is in Jersey City. Hello, Lenny. Hello. Lenny, I'm going to put you back on hold. Please turn your radio off, otherwise you're going to cost Kenneth his job here. Kevin is in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, Frank. Uh, I got one, a good one. Barry Sanders. Oh, Barry Sanders. Um, he... he was on, yeah, he was on the cusp of actually becoming the, the all-time leading rusher. And, you know, he played for the Detroit Lions his whole career, and he was tired of losing. And he demanded a trade, and they didn't want to trade him, so he just retired. He was—he just turned 31. You know, I didn't realize he was so young, but that's a good example. He was, he was still very dominant. You know, in my eyes, I think he would have been the best ever, hands down, because, I mean, his grade is he, the, the team was terrible. Everybody knew he was going to rush the ball pretty much every time they had the ball. And he still got as many yards as he did. Every, every defense keyed on him, and he still got all those yards. The guy was unbelievable. I think he could have played another five, six years easy and crush the record and oh, uh, no doubt about it i didn't know that he was only 31 at the time kevin thank you 800-848-9222 billy is in long island city hello billy hey frank i can't believe you mentioned dolores hart i was just going to call in and tell you what about um that girl that became a nun but i was all going to say kim novak 
she walked away from Hollywood at the height of her career, and she just came forward six years later and said the reason she did it because Tony Curtis drugged her and raped her. Yeah, I, was, I I remember uh, seeing that article at the uh, at the time. And look, who knows? I, I have a I have a little bit of a problem criticizing people, you know, and accusing them of sexual assault when they're dead and they can't defend themselves. But that is a, that is an interesting one. Um, that was certainly an interesting one. Let me say hello to. We'll try again. Perhaps it's my own foolhardiness. Lenny in Jersey City. Hello. Hello. How are you? Great, Lenny. How are you? I'm uh, calling about Grace Kelly. Well, she so she retired to become a princess, right? Yeah, but she stopped acting. Right? Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I, I mean, I guess I don't know. It, it, she she did. You're right. In my view, it's almost a Jim Brown, The Rock situation. She retired from one career in the public eye to take on another career in the public eye. It's like Ronald Reagan didn't keep making pictures after he was governor of California. But can you really say he retired? No, he went into politics instead. Grace Kelly, Jim Brown, The Rock, it's the same thing. When we did our segment, or I don't know if we've done this or if we just did it in our own brain, on career transitions in the public eye, that would be one. Uh, Like a Reagan, like a Rock, like a Jim Brown. But I don't think she retired. You know, Greta Garbo... Retired. Doris Day, retired. Um, Rick Astley, retired. 800-848-9222. Donovan is in Canada. Hello, Donovan. Hey, Frank. Um, Okay, so this this one could be very debatable, uh, but being myself a bit of a radio junkie, I always thought that Dan Ingram, uh, WABC fame, retired way too early. But he was. I I, uh, I I don't think so. I mean, are you including you know his time with uh, CBS FM and everything? No, no. I was thinking about. He even mentioned uh, during the eighties that he didn't want to do a weekday show anymore after um, he was done at WABC and, uh, and KTU, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. But but he stayed on the radio, right? Uh, yeah, he did. That's true. Yeah. So I, I don't know that I would count Dan, um, but I I see what you mean. See what you mean. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to, I promised we would get to John in Kearney, New Jersey. Go ahead, John. What's on your mind? Yeah, hi. Uh, Remember when we we landed uh, the Perseverance, the rover in um, Mars, and it was the seven minutes of hell to land? Yes. So my question is, how do these UFOs stop? They come hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. How do they stop at, at Earth? It's a great question. I have no idea, John. They have to use something. Right. They can't, they can't ignore the laws of physics. There should be a huge fireball in the sky when these things come to our planet, traveling light years away. They just can't, they just can't stop. They have to carry fuel, all kinds of things. It makes no sense because there are no UFOs. Well, you might be right, John. You might be right. What do you think these... These things in the sky that people are seeing is are well, they're they're refractory of something. Other things, there's there are other things going on in, in the um, that that are human made that are unexplained. Explained, you know, but but there's something else. I mean, there's times you see ref, reflection on something. You say, what is that? And it's 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 nothing. It's just it's it's just it's it's not even there. But, but it, it appears to be there. Like in those yeah. um, when they're caught on radar, like military radar. 
and they make movements that we don't know that a plane is capable of making. Those those instances, what do you think those are? Uh, I'm sure it's, again, something refractory that that is appearing that's that's i mean we have we have now um airplanes that are not picked up by radar mm. well maybe you're right maybe you're right you know john I mean? yeah you could be it could be right hey i only ask the questions no answers from me charles is in queens hello charles yeah hi 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 um i want to bring i don't know if you heard of him you might have um his name is uri uri zohar z-o-h-a-r in Israel, something like 30, 35 years ago, he was literally the best in everything that's possible as an entertainer, singer, comedian, you name it. Huh. Uh, there was never anyone like him. And all of a sudden, at the top of his game, he gave it all up. He recently passed away, by the way, about four or five weeks ago as an elderly man. He gave it all up and started learning the Torah and the Talmud almost day and night. Um, and he was the happiest person in the world, and he raised children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on. And the only time he did something else is because secular Israelis, as well as religious Israelis, but many secular Israelis were, are, are still in awe of him. I mean, in awe. You might look him up, Uri Zohar. And uh, so they would want to become maybe more religious, and he would come and talk to them to bring them closer to God and closer to religion. Char- Charles, I'm going to let you go just because whoever was tasked with fixing your phone retired way too early. But uh, that is a good one. And I'm looking him up now, and I was unfamiliar with him. But uh, he was somebody that uh, that absolutely did. You know, someone someone just sent me a note that maybe Joe Bonanno, the namesake of the Bonanno crime family, he was the youngest ever boss of a crime family. He um, hung it all up. He retired, uh, but I think he was sort of, my understanding is he was kind of forced out, kind of forced to retire, but I don't know. John in Suffolk County. Hello, John. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Uh, I'd be doing great if you could stop that beeping. Sorry, I was, I was, I'm was i on my way to the, to the LIAA right now, but I wanted to call in real quick. Um, so I, uh, Bobby Orr, he was 31. He, he was, was still a, in his prime. He was a hockey player? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not. I, I don't know much about hockey, but he was still dominant at the time that he retired. Yeah, dominant defenseman. He was one. He was one. Of, he was in his prime. Thirty-one years old. Mm. And okay. then uh, Gronkowski, twenty-nine years old. I thought he just came back. Didn't he come back? He came back one year, and now he officially retired again at 29. Oh, he did? I didn't know that. Okay. Well, that's a good one. He was still, uh, uh, including in the most recent season I saw him, and he was doing very well. Those are both good ones. Well yep. done. 800-848-9222. Um, there's a lot of boxers that I think retired at the right time or even maybe, you know, um, Rocky Marciano. I mean, if, if there's a definition of somebody that left at exactly the right time, the guy never lost a fight. 40, 49, I think, 49 and 0. I think the to this day, the only undefeated world champion, and retired as the world champion at the height of his career. He could have stayed and done what all these other fighters do and wait till they start to, um, you know, wait till they start to get a little long in the tooth. He didn't do that. He retired at the age of 32, finished his career 49-0. and I don't know a lot of folks that would walk away from that degree of money today. 
Jim is in Trenton. Hello, Jim. Yeah, hi, Frank. Uh, you know, I, I uh, wanted to have two before I called. Barry Sanders, though, I heard was already uh, said. Mm, mm, but mm. anyway, every time I watch NFL on Sunday, uh, Jimmy Johnson, uh, I feel retired too early. As a coach. Uh, but yes, yes, because he's a very young guy and very successful when he retired, in my opinion. Oh, that's true. That's a good one. You know, he was in Atlantic City last week for the Jimmy Johnson fishing uh, trip they do. And Michael Jordan came out there and it was a whole big thing. Dan Marino was out there. It was a big fishing expedition. All these big athletes were in Atlantic City to be part of that. Melvin is in the Bronx. Hello, Melvin. Yes. Teresa Graves, who played on Get Christy Love and also in a few movies, she walked away from all that and became a Jehovah Witness. One. And as far as Rossi Garciano goes, he refused to fight Joe Lewis, who, who, who issued a challenge to, uh, to come out of retirement in Boston. And then he refused to fight black boxers. Is that true? Rossi, I, I didn't know that. Or wants to go look at the narratives and talk to other people besides um, um, being stuck in one direction. Okay, well, listen to everybody. All right, Melvin, we almost made it out of that call without you insulting me, but I'm glad we. Glad we were able to maintain the kind of consistency that you're known for. You know, your suggestion of Teresa Graves is is actually a very good one. She was she was doing a lot of starring television work, and she was doing really well. And uh, that's right, she did leave uh, leave at a time when she was at the height of her career. I think that's true. So. Uh, yeah, uh, 1974, baptized as a Jehovah's Witness and started using her celebrity to bring international awareness to a lot of issues like that. Very interesting. All right, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give away $1,000. At least we're going to try. If you are the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222, that's 1-800-848-9222, right now, we're going to give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. First, let me say hello to Bob in Tarrytown. We'll do one last premature retirement. Hello, Bob. Hello, Frank. Uh, one I have is uh, Anita Page, an actress from the silent era, retired about age 30, uh, retired about age 26 in 1936. Stayed out of the industry about 60 years, made a late-life comeback in B-rated movies, was at the Academy Awards in 2008, was the oldest person who had attended the original Academy Awards. Really? Wow. That is interesting. Um, now, uh, I, I was unfamiliar with her first retirement from acting. She retired voluntarily, or was she one of these stars that had a difficult time making the transition from silence to talkies? Uh, she made some talkies. Uh, she was, I believe, the leading lady in Clark Gable's first starring role film. And uh, a producer tried to get her on the couch. She said, I'm not that kind of girl, and retired. Wow. That is, that's wild. That's a good one. Absolutely. Uh, she was in a couple of Buster Keaton movies that I've seen, actually. All right. Seventh caller to 800-848-9222. minute. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
The great Rick Astley. He's made a comeback. He's back. Doing very well. All right. Uh, without further ado, it is time for us to try to give away $1,000. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's say hello to Frank on Long Island. Hello, Frank. Good morning. Hello. Hello, Frank. You ready to play the $1,000 Minute? I am. Okay, great. You know the rules, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Let's get started. What month? Is St. Patrick's Day in? February? Frank? Really? Frank? No, it's March. March. You know, I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here all of it. I'm like... Frank, oh, man. March. Frank, how do you not know that? That is, I thought, that that's the giveaway question. It is, and I was thinking on hold... I'd better not get the giveaway question wrong. Uh, I'm going to put you back on hold. Uh, talk to Kenneth. Give him your address. We'll give you a consolation prize. I don't think that was too difficult for number one. What? I mean, unless I am now out of step with... Uh, no, it's not too he, difficult. He, everyone should know that. Right? March is basically St. Patrick's month now. I mean, every other week there's a St. Patrick's Day parade somewhere. Yeah. Oh, so that geez. was pretty easy. That was embarrassing. You know what's funny? Um... Yesterday and the day before, we had callers that didn't get a single question wrong. And the only reason they didn't win the $1,000 is because they they paused a couple of times to think or to guess, and they didn't get to all 10 questions. But I said, you know, we've been on a real hot streak with callers calling in, and then boom, he get, doesn't know what month St. Patrick's Day is. Jeez. Guess he's not Irish. Uh, I guess not. Like I not. said, every week there's a St. Patrick's Day parade in the month of March. I don't think that's too tough a question for number one. Again, you know, um, question one is supposed to be, you know, uh, what's two plus two? I think that's almost as easy as what is two plus two. All right, so I'm listening to the uh, Cats at Night show yesterday. And, you know, you remember yesterday I explained my trip to Coney Island, and I was saying how Sid Rosenberg had secretly thrown out the first pitch at the Cyclones game on Friday with Congressman Peter King, and I said, well, Sid is so dumb to make this such a secret thing because I don't think John's going to care. Lo and behold, at the beginning of John Katzmatidi's interview with Eric Shuffler, who's the president of the uh, Staten Island Ferry Hawks yesterday... They end up talking about me. Now, I didn't hear anything from John on this. But then I'm listening to the radio, and I hear this. Frank Morano goes all the way from, he lives in Staten Island, goes all the way to Coney Island. <laughs> Frank Morano's listening. For, for, for a hot dog. We have to talk to him. Can you his pay for that? Oh. No, he's, he's killing it overnight, so I don't think that's happening. And, now, and it was a, a little bit longer. So, but John did a whole thing about how I shouldn't be going to Coney Island when the Ferry Hawks playing right there. Now, I've been to multiple Ferry Hawks games, and this was my first Cyclones game of the season. So I, I did feel uh, like maybe Sid was right. Maybe maybe I should have kept it a secret. Uh, 
and not talk about that. But I, the general consensus is, or the consensus is that um, is that John was only joking. But boy, I love being right, huh? <laughs> I will tell you, I will be returning to a Staten Island Ferry Hawks game. On uh, this is really something I'm pretty excited about. On Saturday, July thirtieth. Okay, um, if you go to one Ferry Hawks game this season, make it Saturday, July thirtieth. If you live in the New York area, go to this game. This is going to be seventy-seven WABC night at the Ferry Hawks game. Not only are the Ferry Hawks playing the um, the Lancaster Barnstormers. Not only is Vinny Madunio, who's a terrific talent, singing the national anthem, not only are there fireworks after the game, but before the game, at 4 o'clock, there's going to be a pregame softball game at 4 p.m. in which the WABC on-air talent takes on the NYPD softball team. Now, I am not liking our chances in this game here, I got to tell you, because I saw my performance in the recent softball game that I just played, and fielding-wise, I was still very strong, but I was popping everything up. So I know this NYPD softball team. This is a very good team. And unfortunately, I think I might be one of the better softball players amongst the on-air staff. So... Uh, you know, Bernie, I don't know, is going to play. Dominic says he doesn't know how well he can run because of his gout. Curtis has got every injury there is. So, I mean, um, Greg Kelly is probably a good athlete. I know Brian Kilmeade is a good athlete. So we have Kilmeade, Kelly. Uh, I don't know if John's going to play or if he's going to be just kind of the manager. By the way, I reiterated my suggestion to John and to the powers that be that on this night, 77 WABC night, they make it John Katzmatidi's bobbing head doll night, where the first 500 fans, maybe even the first 1,000, get a complimentary John Katzmatidi's bobbing head doll. That would be so much fun, wouldn't it? I'd love that. But uh, I don't know if Reed is going to play. I don't know if Liddy is going to play. So I wonder I wonder how this game is going to go. It's going to be very interesting. But I'm excited to play. I am, uh, I'm going to try and get to the batting cage a little bit over the course of the next 10 days so that I don't pop everything up like I do in the um, charity softball game. But how fun does that sound? I'm going to be there. I'm going to try and bring uh, baseball enthusiast young Carmine Morano there, along with my wife Rachel. But uh, Vinny Madunio singing the national anthem. The Ferry Hawks taking on the Barnstormers. The WABC on-air staff taking on the... Um, taking on the NYPD softball team, it should be it should be a, a raucous good time and fireworks afterward. I mean, come on, and these are responsible fireworks. These are not like these idiots that keep you up on Fourth of July weekend when you're trying to get a couple hours of sleep and people are blowing up their own hands. No, this is a professional fireworks display in a very beautiful scenic setting, right overlooking. New York Harbor. So I'm going to be there. If you want tickets, I think you can go to um, I think you can go to the Ferryhawks website and maybe even at uh, wabcradio.com. Uh, Matt, do we have any info on um, on how people how people get tickets? Uh, I don't have anything right here on hand. Nothing. But I know okay. there is a promo that has been running about it. Okay, but you don't know what it says. 
Um, no, not offhand. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, so if you go to the Ferry Hawks website, you can. I think there's a discount code. But uh, if you go to the Ferry Hawks website, uh, you can get tickets for Saturday, July 30th. And uh, you can, it's ferryhawks.com. And we'll all be there. So it should be a fun day. Arnaldo is in Brooklyn. Hello, Arnaldo. Hi. Caller said that uh, Rocky Marciano tried to dodge black fighters, uh, specifically uh, Joe Lewis. Right. Uh, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but he fought two notable black fighters. Uh, Jersey Joe Walcott and Archie Moore for his last bout. Okay, well, I'm glad you said that because, you know, Melvin, when he's not insulting me, he does have a questionable record of accuracy. So uh, I, I'm not vouching for the things that uh, that <laughs> Melvin was saying. So thank you for clarifying. You're not going to be Dr. Vouchy. <laughs> I like that. That's good, Arnold. Uh, Dr. Va- uh, Dr. Vouchy. By the way, speaking of sports and baseball specifically, uh, I want to wish a happy, you ready for this? 100th birthday to Rachel Robinson, the widow of professional baseball player Jackie Robinson. She is 100 years old today. I met her, um, I guess, about 19 years ago in Coney Island when they were. I was working at the Brooklyn Cyclones at the time, and they were honoring her her husband. And uh, she was just a delight. She was very, very nice. And so uh, I'm glad. I'm glad that uh, that she is still doing really well at uh, at 100. She's apparently very spry, very sharp, and uh, very much on top of things. She's the uh, she's very, still involved in the Jackie Robinson Foundation. So uh, she always struck me as a pretty impressive woman. So uh, happy birthday to her, Rachel Robinson, 100 years old, if you could believe that. All right. Um, what else do I have here? You know, we'll do the we'll do the thousand dollar. No, excuse me. We'll do fifteen seconds of fame in just a minute. I was disappointed we didn't get better advice for uh, Beanie Feldstein. She's probably sitting by her radio, turning it up, saying, "Oh, they're talking about me. They're not being mean. They're going to have good advice." And then you guys, you let her down. Well, I guess as an entertainer, she's probably used to living with disappointment. All right, 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. You can be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, before we get out of here, let me tell you what's coming up tomorrow. Very much looking forward to this. Uh, you know who's going to be here? Karina Cohn. Do you know who that is? 
she wrote a very thoughtful, very moving op-ed in the Washington Post a couple of months ago. I'm just going to tell you the headline. I'm not going to tell you anything about it. The headline tells you a great deal of where we're going to be going tomorrow. Headline of her op-ed, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was 19 and Had Sex Reassignment Surgery. That's the op-ed she wrote. She's going to join me tomorrow. We're going to talk about that and a few other things. In just a minute, uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds, 800-848-9222. In the Morano household, we are still dealing with the aftermath of this uh, Barbecue that we had on Saturday. You know, it's so funny. There's when it's when it's 95 degrees out. There's such a battle to preserve and conserve ice. All right, let's fill all the coolers with ice. Okay, we still have more ice. All right, put some of it there. Stick some of it in the freezer. So then, meanwhile, barbecue's gone. Coolers are all emptied, and we still have two or three bags of ice in the freezer. So we tried to get somebody to take them. But nobody nearby wanted them. So we ended up discarding the very ice that we were so determined to preserve. Just struck me as, again, with all the food that we ended up throwing out, still very wasteful. By the way, I'm not seeing a lot of people eating this week's edition of the egg salad. You know what I think the problem is? I put it in the refrigerator and there was still tin foil around it. And I think the tin foil. It discouraged people from poking in there, even though I sent out an email announcing that it was there. So I've removed the tinfoil, had a couple of spoonfuls of egg salad myself, and I'm hoping now that people see what it is, they will, you know, they'll indulge a little bit more and we can we can move on with our lives. Um, you know, you know, it's funny when I was setting up for the barbecue on Friday evening. I I cut my hand because you're carrying all this stuff, umbrellas and chairs and this and that and cushions and uh, ladder ball sets and bocce sets and cornhole sets and you're moving all sorts of things and you're opening things. So my hand was bleeding as I was setting up and my wife sees my hand bleeding. She says, oh, what happened? I said, oh, I don't know. I was lifting something out of something. My hand, you know, cut my hand and um, I put a Band-Aid on it. But it was one of those things. It actually was not a brand name Band-Aid, but it was an adhesive bandage. So I put an adhesive bandage on it. And it was one of those things where, you know, I don't know, you take a shower, the adhesive bandage gets wet. You don't get the sense that it's really doing much. So I ripped the adhesive bandage off. Spent most of Saturday with just my open scratch on my hand. It's very visible. And it looks bad. It's, I mean, it doesn't hurt or anything. But my stepmother said, oh, what happened there? Did a cat get you? I said, no, it was just when I was setting up. So that was Saturday. Sunday, my wife and I are driving to Coney Island, and my wife notices that same hand has more scratches on it. She said, what happened? I said, well, you know, I was just putting everything away and lifting all this stuff and setting up tents and putting away tents, and and it scratched me again. She says, what are you putting away? What are you carrying that is causing you so much injury? Are, are you are you putting away umbrellas and cushions that have knives and razors attached to them that I'm not aware that we own? And sure enough, I don't know what it is that I'm handling or in the manner in which I'm handling it. But sure enough, the the uh, scratches did replicate 
on my hand somehow. So somebody posted in the barbecue discussion in the Facebook group, and if you want to join the Facebook group, you can go to Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Somebody posted, where are the scars? Well, I am going to show a photo on that thread of the scars that I am dealing with from the sacrifices of hosting all these people at this barbecue. Without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. 800-848-9222. E. Frank is in Astoria. Yes, Frank. As I said in the past, uh, before on your, on your segment, 15 Seconds, do you think that they can create an Eric Adams um, uh, doll that can prevent Curtis from calling uh, Eric Adams a swagger man? Mike in the Bronx. Yeah, Frank. Rocky Marciano was 49 and 0. Rocky Graziano was 67 and 10. You got them mixed up. Frankie in Glendale. COVID, monkeypox, mass shootings, shock attacks, nuclear attacks, the heat wave. Oh, the humanity. What's next? What's next? What's next? And- Leo on the Upper West Side. Frank, my apology. I usually calling after 14 hours of work, and I was hoping that you're not taking seriously my explosions on of my brain on the, on Instagram. You're still the best. Well, it's all good, Leo. I, I don't take anything too personally. John in Staten Island. Yeah, Sam Pirazzolo. Tool for Staten Island. John Tobacco, Newsmax. Tool of, of Staten Island. Mark in Rochelle Park. Losing my faith in humanity. Maybe you got to make the questions a little bit easier, Frank. Like, when is Christmas? What month is Christmas? We've done this. February St. Patrick's Day. We've done that. <laughs> Tom in Edgewater. Hey, Frank. Uh, I got a bone to pick with Curtis. When he was filling in with you, I almost won the contest, and he never sent me a hat. He promised me he was going to. Put it on you now. Unbelievable. It- Pete in the Bronx. <laughs> hey, she's a moron. She's a moron. She's a- Fred and Garfield. St. Patrick's Day was too difficult. The odds are 12 to 1. Um, Joe in Staten Island. Hey, history was made yesterday, Frank. Not only is E. Frank back on the air, but he's getting married. I wonder if uh, Al Gattulo is available for best man. Michael in Manhattan. Yes. Always eat a piece of fish in the morning. That way, during the course of the day, you won't be hard of herring. Uh, Arnold in Brooklyn. In 1951, Joe Lewis came out of retirement, and Rocky Marciano knocked him out in the eighth round. Thank you. On that note, I think we will. Uh, I think we will probably end it there. I want to thank my friend uh, Councilman Joe Borelli. He's actually the minority leader of the New York City Council who sent me a, um, a, a, an advertisement for a larger refrigerator and says that I will need this when Carmine, for all of Carmine's chicken nuggets, etc. Well, here's the situation. My Aunt Camille has a big refrigerator that she's willing to give me. So I just have to figure out a way to transport it. I need like three guys. I asked my two brothers, and then my, fr- my brother Nick pretended that he didn't hear me. So, you know, if only I had a best friend. Right? All right. That slams the lid on things for today. Uh, on WABC in New York, uh, you'll get to hear Deb Valentine bring you the news. I'll be back tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat station. 
Frank Moreno, good day.